the tripe. A cookie. Irene, Irene. Because. Uh, Irene. What? Uh, wrong Elvis. What? What you mean, wrong Elvis? There's no. only one Elvis in there with the belly and the belt buckles and the dying on the toilet and all that carry on, innit? There's two, innit? Yeah, there's, uh, there's the king uh, and the uh, other British one, the specky one, who's the king of America, No, I don't know that one. I don't know what you're on about. You don't know what you're talking about. Because I love you too much, baby. Hello, 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 hello. With me in the studio is a special guest who, by his own definition, plays bass and writes books. In terms of the former skill set, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee, Bruce Thomas, has delivered distinctive, highly melodic and punchy bass lines with Elvis Costello and the Attractions, The Pretenders, Suzanne Vega, Al Stewart... Tasman Archer, Billy Bragg, Quiver, The Roadrunners, and many, many others. And as a writer, he was responsible for bringing to life the definitive biography on martial arts star Bruce Lee entitled The Fighting Spirit. In addition to having several other exciting literary projects in the pipeline, his latest book, Rough Note, which was released last summer, is both an autobiography and a cultural history, covering Bruce's entire career in music with a particular focus on his 20 years on and off as an attraction. Are you troubled by spots, blemishes and flaky skin? Well, download the Dookie Radio Show every Monday and your skin will be looking clear, radiant and luscious in no time. The Dookie Radio Show, your key to beautiful skin. Oh, hello, darling. Has anybody told you that you've got beautiful skin? Yes, all the time. Bruce, welcome to the Dookie Radio Show. Your latest book, Autobiography Rough Notes. Yeah. We'll be discussing that later, but first I have to ask about an earlier incarnation of it-ish, which was the big wheel. Yeah, yeah. From a timeline point of view... It's early 90s, is it not that The Big Wheel came out? It came out in 90. It was being written about two or three years before that. Was that originally featured in Time Out magazine well, here? or? They, yeah, they. Uh, I knew Tony Elliott quite well, the, the uh, publisher owner, and um, he got wind of it, and basically I showed him the manuscript and he just pulled all the juicy bits out and ran a feature, which uh, caused great consternation, as you can imagine. <laughs> Yes. In certain quarters. Thinly disguised are two words I would yeah. use to describe it. It's what um technically known as a Roman a clay, which is a story with a key. So basically, once you've identified who the singer is and the drummer, 
uh, you don't really need, you know, you just put the names there automatically in your in your head, and it ain't that difficult <laughs> to identify who the singer and the drummer and the keyboard player are, to be honest. They're familiar characters but, that fans uh, yeah. of yours w- will be familiar with. Yeah, well, it was it was about the band, really. So, but but rather than write it as a historical document or as I was a memoir or autobiography I wrote it as a kind of novelized version of a band on the road so it's got a kind of spinal tappy element to it but its gestation came about in the in between years I suppose because there you had two stints in yeah. the attractions or rather there were two stints of the attractions yeah. 77 to 87 yeah. and then you rejoined the outfit in 1994. Just 96, yeah. When that Time Out article feature appeared, that was taken from the first version of the manuscript, and we were gigging at the time. We were doing a, we were on tour. We were doing a gig at um, in London uh, when it came out, and Elvis stayed up all night. Uh, I mean, the singer stayed up all night. <laughs> and... Uh, and wrote a rejoinder to it called The Ballad of Joe Soap, which was his kind of version of The Big Wheel, which was a, you know, he, he must have been up all night writing it. I didn't, lis- I didn't listen to it because my car had just been nicked at the time, so I had other things to deal with. <laughs> and it, I mean. it got a, one, a, one-off, um, a one-off airing at, uh, I, think, I can't remember, the Dominion Theatre or somewhere like that, and, um, and uh, that was that, you know, but it was all finished in '87. Um, because it was written during the time that a certain amount of frustration... I actually started writing um, when we were um, when we were doing a US tour with Squeeze, and ironically enough, we were all squeezed onto one bus, two bands, two lots of managers, tour managers, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, so there were, I think there were about 18 of us I mean, it wasn't like a, a coach that goes to the seaside with 50 seats. They were. This was all done out with beds and whatever. Like you know, well, you know what tour buses buses look like now. Um, and because uh, there was just nowhere for everyone to go, you know. So I just I ended up um, writing to kind of vent my frustrations in a way. Claustrophobia inspired you to set pen to paper. It's kind of weird that at that particular time where tours were still opulent, you know, people were were still touring with a huge budget that... um, that suddenly you're almost going back in time from a, an austerity point of view of uh, being in such um, close confines. I know that with Elvis Costello and the attractions, and you do highlight it in rough notes, yeah. that you, you made a lot of money on tour, but also a lot of money was spent. Yeah, well, that, but we were we were on in a bit of an austerity drive at that point because we'd... Um well, you have to backtrack. We'd recently com- uh, committed something of a faux pas in America on tour and uh, record sales had kind of plummeted and the whole trajectory of uh, being bigger than Bruce Springsteen, if not the Beatles, <laughs> had, uh, had um, come to grief. So we were doing, uh, we were kind of going back to basics in a way and doing small gigs and and 
pairing everything back. I, as I say in the book, ironically, it was the the fact that we're all crammed together on the on the bus that after two weeks meant that we were all insisting on having our own rooms, which put the budget back up to where it would have been in the first place if we'd taken two buses. So. <laughs> Yeah, it's counterproductive. Counterproductive. (laughs) Or self-regulating as the self-balancing system. I have to talk about the incident with Stephen Stills. Stephen Stills obviously has a reputation for being a dynamic character and being diplomatic here. And it sounds as though... I I sense that. (laughs) (laughs) And obviously, at that particular time in his career, Mm. may have been slightly more bitter than he normally would be. And then suddenly, with your good selves, very much... The, the vanguard of of you know the best of the British invasion to yeah. the US, you yeah. know, must have been number one jealous and number two very judgmental when you're in deepest Ohio and had that the altercation. Obviously, Elvis Costello had a bit of a faux pas and yeah, and all of that. But context is difficult to convey. Yeah, and. Well, there is, I mean, it was a perfect storm. I guess we were absolutely fried at that point um, from touring. You know, we were just doing relentless, relentless gigging and travelling. And I think, um, as I say in the book, if if it hadn't happened there, it would have happened somewhere else with someone else. And um, it it was just a kind of one of those what the like you know the iceberg happened to be where the titanic was going you know and it was one of those things that uh was kind of seems almost destined to happen but it if it wasn't the titanic it might have been another ship you know it mm. was it's uh but um yeah you i mean your kind of diplomatic assessment of mr stills is probably pretty accurate i think he was it started off we were wired really done um but we were still playing we were playing well but we were run it was that um you know forced forced energy kind of thing digging in digging in and um we got back from a gig and our parking spot had been taken so and then we found out which band had taken it out you know it wasn't our parking spot but it was the one that we would as naturally have assumed you know if we had been only one band staying at the hotel mm. um so, so there's a bus parked out front and, and somebody said oh it's Stephen Stills band and Pete Tom said oh old, old school old school you know let's let's have them kind of thing you know and uh we eventually got into the bar with them and uh, and it was just it was banter, and then the banter, you know, banter got a little bit darker. I don't think Americans are as good at banter as the Brits are. It's a different kind of, um, you know. I mean, I've 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 uh, I've been bantering with my with a friend Barry from the from the base centre, and and and. And some guy will come up and, and, and say, hey, you guys really hate each other, you know. And we say, no, we're best mates. That's how we go on. You know, that's how Brits go on. It's just, but when you do it with, um, when you do it with a septic, as I called him. Ah, oh, yes, a septic tank. A septic tank. For those not in the know, 
septic tank is Cockney rhyming slang for yank. Septic tank, yank. It wasn't kind of one-to-one banter like you might have with another band like, I don't know, you know, our contemporaries, you know. Um, we used to have banter with Ian Jury that got a bit dark yes. and things I mean, that like that. that sounded like it wasn't so much light-hearted banter, but there was a little bit of genuine mm, there was a bit jealousy. Of, yeah, there was, oh, there was a bit of edge to it. Mm. There was all, a bit of edge. Competition. But, yeah, yeah, there's a bit of edge, but... Um, but um, in the Stills case, I think he he was he was being a bit patronising. I think that was the problem. He, um, you know, I think he saw himself as a bit of an, as you say, as an elder statesman and, and us as upstarts. And um, that's kind of where all the um, challenge about, you know, what do you think of American music and everything? And well, I, of course, we, you know, we thought, oh, Boston foreigner. You know, poodle bands, as we used to call them, because they used to look like their haircuts looked like poodles sitting, sitting atop of their heads, and um, and all that overblown production and multi-layered vocals and guitars and everything. So, but then he kind of um, turned it to, which what is in all honesty, completely inviolable territory, which is American roots music, you know, and black American roots music. It's absolutely, you know, untouchable. Uh, Absolutely. You know, you cannot diss it. You cannot not say anything against uh, blues, you know, jazz, soul, any of it. But by that point, of course, we we weren't having any of it, so... You were backed into a corner in terms of the argument. Yes, that music, the Roots music, is the is the blueprint. The, yeah, the, yeah, those yeah, were the cannot, architects. You know, he was absolutely right, but we weren't, you know, we, I wasn't, nobody was prepared to, to acquiesce to him at that point. And Mr McManus... A.K.A. Elvis Costello. ...dropped an N-bomb. He did. Which wasn't uh, to be uh, to be uh, in those days wasn't a bomb. It wasn't. It didn't carry all the taboo associations as it does these days. It didn't really. It might have been a tad tasteless, but it was certainly wasn't the the hugely um, offensive word that it is now. What year did this exchange take place? Just to give listeners who might not know the whole backstory uh, a timeline. It would line. be early eighties. Early eighties. In fact, late seventies. Right. So we're now talking about 37 years ago, mm. nearly 40 years ago. You know, you've seen those programmes, it was all right in the 70s, yes. those TV shows. And My people word. sit there with their... We all sit there with our mouths agape and everything. And, mm. and, and, um, and we're like, yeah, but that's, you know, that is how it was. That was contemporary mores and that was the current... That was the cultural values of the time. So it, you have to, you know, I mean... <laughs> I live in a I live in a, a place called the Kennet Valley in Wiltshire. And Kennet is a polite derivation from the old English word cunnit. Ah. And cunnit was shortened into you know, and it was the it was the wellspring of the female fertilization fertilizing the land, you know. So I think you know, when I see Lord and Lady Kennet walking along Marlborough High Street, I wonder if they know. Bruce, you are a very cunning linguist, I have to say. Well, yeah, but I, I, but I got some parking tickets and uh, I wrote to uh, K- 
Kennett Council explaining their uh, their etymology, and uh, I thought you. I said I thought you uh, Kennett Wardens might be interested. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, that's a, that's a, I, I digress. I like that digression. That reminds me. It's of... just that it's just to say that language changes and words that were in common usage and uh, become taboo, and then and now, in fact, it's becoming gradually becoming untaboo. The same as the f bomb is no longer a bomb that it was in the sixties. You know, it's on TV all the time now, and and so the c bomb is you know, it appears once a fortnight now. I've heard some American comedians being interviewed on podcasts which mm. have been recorded stateside, and I was pleased to hear that Taking the Piss is starting to make its way in American day-to-day -day language. Yeah, because, uh, yeah. Language is evolving. The fact that you gave information to the, the parking uh, officials mm. with your ticket... Mm actually has parallels with your book, in a way. Mm. Stay with me. Do tell. <laughs> Normally, the, the anatomy of an autobiography from a musician or a sports person mm. is quite standard, where it's the early years of being inspired by ad name of sports person here, mm. ad name of musician here, mm. followed by early years of struggle, followed by the, the career followed by the downward spiral, addiction mm. issues or injuries, and usually mm. ending with, I love my family, mm. and, or in the case with Dave Davis, you enjoy looking at UFOs. Right. Yours is very, very different from that because throughout the book, you're actually informing the reader about other bands who sometimes have only a loose association with yourself, mm. but to give a basis for better knowledge of, of music. Mm. Like for instance, I did not know about the band Clouds. Right. You extol the virtues of this yeah. much and very sadly overlooked yeah. band from the prog era. Yeah. Other people writing on autobiography wouldn't do that. And I think it's a tribute to the fact that you want to give the, the reader... Mm knowledge and you, you yeah, want to yeah. pass this on you want to disseminate good information and you did this with the the parking people right yeah <laughs> that's the link <laughs> with the, in this, well do you remember i don't know if all your uh, listeners will know but there's a guy called pete frame who's very famous for drawing rock family trees yes. and they often come up in you know magazines or tv documentaries and he would he would do like a lineage of yes or somebody or genesis or something you'd realize where they see where they all came from and how they all coalesced and things and in a way i was kind of doing my my if i did my own rock family tree i could probably connect it by you know it's the six degrees of separation thing but i could probably connect it to nearly everybody in the music business Easily. and so could everybody else because you know just through knowing curtis muldoon it gets connected to madonna who i've never met in a, and probably never will but it's it's like it's just one step removed isn't it they they wrote her a you know a song that she eventually recorded and i think and and the thing with clouds and and all those bands and then you know in uh, clouds were uh, if people don't 
already know, um, Clouds were the archetypal prog band who really set the template for all the informed improvisation, the, the hybridization of classical and jazz music, the uh, virtuoso playing. A lot of people would say, oh, dear, you know, but that's, it's, that's not the point whether you like the genre or not. I mean, they, they actually pretty much wrote the first chapter and copying the first chapter in the audience were lots of people like Keith Emerson and uh, Rick Wakeman and, and, and David Bowie himself, you know, were all checking them out. Um, Clouds um, were, <clears throat> were even managed by Brian Epstein and um, they, were in, they were on their first US tour when Brian Epstein died. And they were left stranded. 1967. Right. right. Yeah. Oh, what a horrible they were, they, time. Yeah. They were left stranded. And by the time they got back and got up and running again and found a new manager and um, agency, uh, the marquee was full of bands like uh, Yes and, and the, the Nice and everything. And, and, I mean, they were even copying some of the same songs. And so, and David Bowie got the keyboard player Billy Ritchie, the organist of Clouds, to do all the demo, all his demos. David Bowie said Billy Ritchie was a genius. So, I mean, I can't think of a higher accolade than a genius calling you a genius. Absolutely, really. yeah, it <laughs> takes know. one to know one. Yeah, yeah. And, but uh, David Bowie was always very generous. He was not. Uh, he was. Um, he was a very uh, generous, spirited person. It seems to me. I mean, I don't know know him at all i've bumped into him but um everything that you see or hear about him leads you to believe that he's um a good guy absolutely i think even his gesture in doing iggy pop covers or mm. indie pop iggy pop written tunes when bowie's career was on the ascent yeah. as a way of saying thank you and helping out a person yeah. who was going yeah. through a very difficult time financially yeah uh, is, well, is a testament to that fact china girl for instance he's never backwards in crediting in giving credit to other people because he i think uh he's secure in his you know, secure in his own talent and abilities and everything. Stuart McConey said a good thing the other day. He said, you know, that he described Bowie like that. He said he wasn't as sour and awkward as some of some of the people I've come across. I thought, ooh, <laughs> who could he possibly mean by that? I thought. Well, one name sprang to mind. Yes. <laughs> Bowie embraced other future icons of prog rock rick wakeman played yeah. a, a piano a, on a number on, of uh, life on mars yeah. mm. Mm. and, and uh, talking of prog in one of your earlier bands you played with steve howe who later became yeah. the guitar player for yes bodast bodast right yeah. this is pre yes by a couple of years um yeah i would say so yeah bodast was um was um well, it was Dave Curtis and Clive Muldoon who wrote Madonna's Ray of Light, although it was mainly Clive who... It was a Lennon-McCartney thing. They wrote separately but took joint credit for mm. songwriting. So actually Clive Clive who um, Muldoon who wrote Ray of Light. And um, we recorded it. We recorded it um, on their... Bo well, Bodust was... Um, well, this is the first chapter of the book. It was like how all these threads come together and then go off somewhere else. The drummer and the bass player, Dave Curtis and Bobby Clark, had, were, had backed Chuck Berry and had backed a guy called uh, Vince Taylor, who was 
uh, if you want to Google it and check it out, who was Britain's first and probably greatest rock star. He's Britain's Gene Vincent. And he was, um, he was uh, spiked with acid one day at the gig. And uh, instead of going on stage in his black leather outfit, he went on in white robes and started blessing the crowds. So, Ouch. Ouch, yeah. As happens in these instances, a, fr- a French opportunist called Johnny Halliday stepped in and s- stole the whole act and the whole image and the whole outfit and everything. So that's where Johnny Halliday came from. Um, Who is still going strong yeah, in France and playing I mean, stadiums. It's, it's kind of all taken from Elvis Presley, and that's, that's not on and, Gene and Vincent, let's not get it wrong. But, I mean, you know, some people can do it well and some people make a dog's breakfast of it. So anyway, the drummer and the bass player uh, that were Vince Taylor's backing rhythm section got together with Steve Howe, who'd just left a a group called the In Crowd that he was in with Keith West. Uh, They they were Tomorrow, uh, and who did My White Bicycle. Bicycle. Psychedelic hit of 67. They got Steve Howe, Dave Clive got together. I got drafted in as on bass because um, the, Dave wanted to concentrate on songwriting. They had a, they had a few songs, couldn't get a deal, so it ended up that it, Dave and Clive got a deal as a duo, but Steve Howe and I played on it, so it was still that band. And one of the songs we did was Ray of Light. So you actually play on that original I version? I play on the original version of Ray of Light, yeah. This featured Goddess in... of the Universe. Yes. Come quickly. Ah, we played that very track in a segment on the Dookie Radio Show called Cover of a Cover. Zipper in the sky at night, I wonder Do your tears of I didn't realise that you'd actually played on that. I played on the first, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a it's a folk song. Mm. You know the way it's done. It's not obviously not a dance record. And I feel like I've just got The Quite. melody's the same, and mm. m- most of the lyrics, and Madonna's written a few extra lines and chucked a few of the dodgy ones out. Mm. But Goddess of the Universe, come quickly, for the call of thunder threatens everyone. Quicker than a ray of light, she beckons. All that is there, you know. And she just added a couple of hooks based on yeah. some of the vocal parts that were there. All yeah. William Orbit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Suggested it. I mean, I think she's done a good. She's done a good job of it. It is. You know, a, she's, she spotted a good s- song and rearranged it in a in a relevant way and made a good job of it. I mean, and talking of those early bands and the the rock and roll family trees and and how widespread that can be. Mm. The Roadrunners, right? Paul Rogers. He of yeah, free, free and bad company, bad company and Queen Queen was your singer. Yeah, well, and funnily enough, he was a bass player, and he wanted to give up bass playing to concentrate on singing. So I'm now beginning to work out where my career went wrong. I should have given up bass playing <laughs> and concentrated on singing. But um, yeah, that was the second second band I was in. 
I met them at, while uh, they were messenger boys at where I was working um, on the local newspaper in Middlesbrough. I was in the art department. And, and you they, were what, uh, an were, earlier version of a graphic designer? A graphic designer. What they did were, they call it then? There was uh, a uh, Commercial artist. Commercial artist, which actually has a nicer ring to it than graphic yeah. designer. Yeah. They were called co- they were copy runners, which is kind of messenger boy. <laughs> right. But, but that was How in the literal. you know that was there were no computers or anything. You know, not everything was typeset. It was all hot metal and stuff in those days. Crack. It was just vellum and quill pens. You know, and they used to distribute it via pigeon. Um, yeah. So we we I um, I just got chatting to them because they were guys my age, and you know I saw. Mick Moody was, became the guitarist of White Snake, Paul Rogers. Um, so I'm wandering around with good albums, you know, like Paul Butterfield Blues Band. I thought, wow, great. Hello, that's good taste. Right. That's my kind of, you know, thing, yeah. So, um, and uh, it turned out, to cut a long story short, it turned out that um, I, was, I was drafted in as a bass player so Paul Rogers could move on to singing. Um, he, that works for for him a little bit you know, he worked seems, out alright for him right. I think yeah. okay. he, he, but he, he was, shows a bit of promise he showed a bit of promise because <laughs> the, the local kind of the local entrepreneur stroke impresario a guy called John McCoy who owned a, owned a couple of the local clubs said that uh, he's going to be one of the great voices of rock he was right he was he didn't say you were going to be one of the, <laughs> the great pluckers of four strings so he was right he was right even though he didn't say it he thought it you oh, see, he, he maybe he he thought it yeah, yeah. he, he should have disseminated this information in the same it. way we're going yeah. back to that ticket that you got and you informing the relevant authorities yeah. of the local community yeah. he, he thought about it and was overly caught yeah. up in the moment about I the sensed it I sensed it yeah maybe yeah. also he felt that you yeah. need not have, have heard it maybe he told no, Paul I... Rogers that you were destined to be the know, uh, icon I, of the four string. I don't know if I was. I'd only been playing a year at the time. I think I was doing well just to put it on the right way round. To be honest, there's some aggressive bass playing. You're bending notes. Were you playing like an Epiphone Rivoli at the time? I think that was what I had yet then. Yeah, yeah. Was yeah. that short scale bass? Yeah, uh, it's normal scale. Um, flat wound. Semi acoustic. Mm. No, I never. I don't think I've ever used flat wound. Did you enjoy that little bit of gear geekery? There'll be a lot more of it at the end of this podcast i think um the aggressive note bending stuff came from the fact that having having finally mastered the bass riff to green onions i moved on to fresh cream album and and, and i was ah. uh, and jack bruce was doing quite a lot of um that semi lead bass playing which uh, which um probably set me off in the direction of overplaying for for ever <laughs> we're now going to go to a, a different era mm. in which you were pulled up on allegedly overplaying. To me, you add point and counterpoint and illustrate a, a freeness in your playing, which is reminiscent of James Jameson and Paul McCartney with a, a little bit of bark thrown in for good measure. But why is it that in, I suppose it would be the mid-80s when yeah. Chrissy Hind and the Pretenders yeah. uh, recruited you in for... My baby. My baby. Yeah. That she had a go 
at you yeah. for playing above the the fifth fret. Well, I, I'd come up with um, I'd come up with quite a nice descending melodic line for um for the what they call the B section of the verse, which is you know verse is usually written there's a first bit to it and then there's a second bit of the verse, then there's a chorus, bridge, etc. Chorus, chorus, fade. Mm. Um, but the B section of the verse, I had quite a nice melodic line that that um, because I take my rhythmic cues obviously from the drum from the bass drum but I've always taken my melodic cues from the voice not the guitars or any of the instruments I always listen to what the voice is doing and uh, and and work with that and I've got a thing that worked perfectly with the vocals and she brought everything to a shuddering halt and said show me what you're doing and, and she said well you'll be doing yourself a favour if you don't go past the second dot the which, second dot which uh, I once heard of a a, a piano player who was admonished by this country singer. He said, he was Irish show band country singer. He mm. said, keep the plane near the lock. <laughs> Obvi- so he, obviously, the lock, the keyboard lid lock is in the middle and don't venture up the low ones or the high ones. Just keep it in the, right in the middle of the keyboard. Um, keep the plane near the lock, which is pretty what she wanted, or keep it near the nut in this case. And... Um, well, fair enough. In fact, you just wanted me to play like, a, you know... Pete Farnden. Pete Farnden. Yeah. Who's, who's Who was a bass player? Fine. No, I'm not disparaging anything they've mm. done or anything. But I thought, well, you know, I'm, I'm not sure if he was still around, alive at the time. No, he, he <laughs> he'd be, passed away. I think away. he'd gone, yeah, because yeah. she did say to... She did say to me when I turned up to the session, do all the guys in your band wear glasses? And I said, well, yeah. She said, well, that's a hell of a gimmick. <laughs> I thought, well, oh, bless her. I could, I could. I, I said, your band's got a hell of a gimmick as well. <laughs> Dime! <Dying. Yeah. laughs> you played bass on that track. I, I did. Simple Minds drummer. I think she was... Um, oh, Mel Gaynor. Was, yeah, Mel Gaynor. Mel Gaynor. She was cohabiting with... Uh, Oh, Jim Kerr at the time, Jim of course. Kerr at yeah, the they, time, yeah, they had they yeah. Um, produced progeny together. So yeah, and so we had um, uh, Robbie McIntosh, who was one of McC- McCartney's guitarists mm. at the time. Very nice guitarist, a lot of jang- <laughs> really, jang- really tasteful, jangly chord mm. type. You know, the, 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 the new kind of uh, thing that um, Andy Summers started. You mm. know, the jangly inversions type of guitar playing, and um, but, yeah, it was a good track. It was a good track. It's a good track, and. You know, Mel Gaynor's a brilliant drummer. Kind of weird well, to, it had to bring. A huge kit, huge yeah, kit set word. up on a huge it, it, riser in a huge room, and you would have thought we were doing the Shea Stadium or something. But he had a, like a premier kit that uh, you know rivaled something I mean, that Keith Moon would have used. Yeah, I mean he uh, he came pretty close to John Bonham as the loudest drummer you know acoustically I've ever heard. Really? Yeah. Right. He he, he did wallop them. And mm. the thing which is confusing to me is why recruit Bruce Thomas in on bass? For his it, wonderfully tasteful melodic lines and then tell him not to play them. Well, exactly. <laughs> There's a, a weird thing. Yeah. I mean... I don't know why she... You know, Martin Chambers, the drummer, was still around, so and he, yeah, he'd, I, been, he'd been sidelined. So uh, it was when everybody had the seven-year itch. It was when Elvis started uh, alienating the attractions. It was when Madness um, split into two camps. It mm. was like 
it was seemed to be like all the bands were thinking like, well, we've done our five, six albums. What can we've done the covers album? We've done that. We've had a cover. You know, I mean, in our case, well, we've done soul. We've done country. We've done the beat group. We've done sophisticated pop. We've done the B sides and outtakes. Um, oh, I don't know. Get rid of the band. <laughs> Get, get rid of the band, go solo. Yeah. Again, normally following the way that most autobiographies go, mm. um, there's usually a, you know, the inevitable struggling years and then what you know the person for the most then gets the yeah. greatest amount of, of coverage. Yeah. Be, be it somebody in sport and their tenure yeah. with a certain yeah. club. Um your story is quite different in that sense, in that you were a very, very successful musician in your own mm. right before making that call to Stiff Records. We'll come on to that in a moment. Yeah. About the session work that you, you were doing, yeah. Al Stewart, Yeah. you also toured with Elton John in the US and yeah. shared the airplane with him. Yeah. Oh, t at times, yeah. At, we, at times. I, 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 we did, yeah, we did give us a lift on his private jet now and again when he felt sorry for us. But, right. Yeah. And that was with which band? That was with uh, Sutherland Brothers and Quiver. So uh, Quiver was a band in its own right. Right. Um, and it was guitarist Tim Rennick, the, uh, of of course. the guitarist of Quiver and I that used to do uh, sessions together, the Al Stewart ones we did with Rick Wakeman on keyboards. So, um, you know, it's it's the, the it's like the, the the threads, you know, keep interweaving all over the place. But um, yeah, Tim he, Rennick, who for those listeners who might yeah. not know the name, and shame on you if you don't, yeah, probably most famously played guitar with Pink Floyd. He was also in the, the Jonathan Ross band for Donkey's Years. Eric and Clapton, Diana Ross. Kenny Rogers, Cliff Richard, uh, he's like, he was the go-to session guitarist. And a lovely chap. And a very Such a nice guy. We, we used to call him, him the Richard Briars of, uh, <laughs> of rock. I because if you, if, I mean, American uh, listeners won't know Richard Briars, but he was, the, the, you know, a really nice guy with a nice woolly jumper on and everybody's friend. That is Tim Rennick. Yeah. I, I remember seeing Tim Rennick doing a, a session for an emerging artist, which is a polite way of saying... Uh, well, a bit of a nobody. It was a tiny pub right. in in Battersea. Yeah. And Tim Rennick was there with the biggest smile on his face as though it, it was Shea Stadium. Yeah, yeah. And giving it his all. And that summarises the man. Just a guy that loves playing and also loves playing for the good of the song. And, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so it was, it was with the Sutherland Brothers Stroke Quiver. Quiver that we went on tour with Elton John, yeah, and that was his break, his real breakthrough tour. I mean, I know he had a breakthrough gig, I think, at the Troubadour, but this this tour, the first, this was my first trip to America, and um, the first gig was, uh, I think, was at Arrowhead Stadium in Kansas, and and, and, he, and he broke Elvis Presley's box office record there, you know, and things, and he broke everybody's. Uh, it was. It was quite a first tour. I mean, it wasn't like the first tour with Elves and the Attractions was clubs, you know, mm. uh, 500-seater clubs. This was, we, this was, you know, 20, well, Madison Square Gardens, Hollywood Bowl, etc., etc. So... From yeah. a timeline point of view, what year are we this talking about here? This was 73. So 1973, so four years before you yeah, before, made that phone call yeah. to Stiff and Records we, and that we would had, change your life. enough, we had, a, we had a record that was certainly top 10 in certain states and, you know, certainly top, top what, 50 or whatever in the US. So we, we, were, we were doing okay. Okay. <laughs> 
And you were also able to see another person named Elvis Presley yeah, yeah, perform yeah, yeah. during yeah. his Burger King years in Las Vegas and yeah. given the, yeah. uh, well, the five-star treatment. Yeah. Um, and so it's just incredible to be in a situation whereby you're touring the States for the first time. You have occasional access to Elton John's jet plane. Well, yeah, well, I told you the story <laughs> about, you know, we got on the plane one day and there was a guy playing the piano in, uh, in there's a little bar area on the plane, a cocktail lounge, and there was a guy playing the piano. And I thought... Oh, guys, all right. Sounds pretty good, you know. And then I sort of did a double take. Thought, ah, that's Stevie Wonder. Wow. <laughs> you know, so he would get people like Al Green coming up for a jam, or and because we were with him, we got you know half the time got introduced to people. And I and so somebody said, oh, this is Martha Reeves, you know, Mark the. And I thought, this is the woman that sang Dancing in the Street and Heatwave, and now. I'm shaking her hand and, you know, oh, this is uh, Holland Dozier and Holland, you know, writer of all the Motown hits. And I, and I thought, well, this is kind of like royalty, isn't it? Meeting you know, the architects, I'm meeting the royalty. And I'm thinking, and that thing never, never leaves you, I don't think, the being a fan, or it shouldn't do. You know, um, I don't think it ever leaves anybody uh, that has, you know, grown up into into the, the music world as it were i i there are just moments yeah you know, i mean it's got the same thing i thought that's david bowie there you mm. know that's i'm i'm in the same room and as david bowie and lou reed and they haven't thrown me out for being a wally <laughs> <laughs> you know? i mean you've been in the same room with many a legend quite a few yeah um, but um you had a technique which you highlight in your book of going to various iconic venues in 1960s yeah. London, yeah. arriving early enough yeah. to assist the bands with loading. So yeah, yeah, you were yeah. able to hang out with Jimmy Page. Yeah, yeah. I used to do the. Used to turn up at the back and say, "I'll carry some of that stuff in," and then kind of just stay in, you know, with the crew, which meant that I got a good seat and I didn't have to pay to go in which would have been a bit tricky at the time because I didn't have any money. But mm. I did, yeah, I saw the Led Zeppelin's first gig. In fact, I, as I was saying in the book, I carried Jimmy Page's amp from the uh, place where he'd had it made in Soho Square up Wardour Street to the Marquis. I said, I'll carry your amp if you get me in. Which company? It was um, a guy called Ted Wallace. Right. Ted Wallace was a, a maker of bespoke amplifiers that most of the session guys used at the time, mm. what Jimmy Page did. It was just around the time that Marshall, Jim Marshall was making a name for himself. But, but um, well, the, the, Jimmy Page was still using the Wallace amps. It was, it was a tiny thing. I mean, it was a, you know, two 12-inch speaker job. Kind uh, of a Vox AC-30 uh, yeah, size was a, it was a studio, Yeah, studio amp, and, and, um, and that's what they were using at the time. They weren't the stadium band. In fact, as I, as I also mentioned, they were very much modelled on the Jeff Beck group, Jeff Beck group with Rod Stewart. Right. That was going round at the time, doing kind of um, heavy, heavy rock three-piece blues-based band, which was what, in fact, I think... They weren't even called Led Zeppelin then. I think they did a few gigs as the new Yardbirds, didn't they? Or, or was I it? believe so. Yeah. Jimmy Page was the Yardbirds' third guitarist mm. after Clapton and Jeff Beck, and then, and then the Yardbirds folded, and Led the prototype Led Zeppelin went out as the new Yardbirds for a handful of gigs before be, before Keith Moon christened them Led Zeppelin. 
They'll go down just like a Led Zeppelin. Yeah. Um, yeah. And talking of Keith Moon, yeah. you also supported The Who oh, in yeah. the, the early, early years. That was with Quiver in, in the early 70s when The Who were absolutely untouchable as the greatest rock band and probably of all time. I don't think I've ever seen... I think... I've never seen a band better than that, and I've never seen a gig. I'm still, I'm getting goosebumps now, even I, after forty years oh. or whatever. I'm getting goosebumps from they did a gig at a show at Glasgow. That was when they just they was the post Tommy Who they were doing, um, and it was who's the, next? The, yeah, and, and exactly. And the first time I'd, I'd seen them play live, play won't get fooled again, and that was absolutely oh oh i've never seen anything like that that is the rock and roll at its absolute best i mean if you look to your left i have a lovely yeah. photograph of keith moon yeah. which was given to me as as a gift yeah. so i i'm a hugely envious of the fact that you were able to witness oh, them at that time yeah. Um, at the the height of their powers. To be fair, the that particular wave you know, lasted quite a while for them in the in it the seventies. So seventy one to even the um, Who live in Texas in seventy five is still pretty much there. I mean that first half of the seventies, absolutely untouchable as the best band of all time, rock band, rock uh, band. Absolutely. And know. talking of The Who and mm. things that you read online, mm. I'm going to take the timeline to 13 years ago or so. Mm. Is it true that you were invited to play with The Who post Entwitzel's passing? I was never invited. No, I wasn't. And I would have done, I offered to. I offered to do it. I went to John. I went to John Entwistle's house to pay my respects after he died. Oh, know? I've done the pilgrimage as well. You know, I went up to Stone on the Ward. Yeah, yeah. You have to really. I mean, he's uh, one of the four cornerstones of modern bass playing. Absolutely. Uh, there's probably five cornerstones of modern bass playing actually, but um, which is John Entwistle Rock. Agreed. Duck Dunn Soul. Oh my word! Yes. J James Jameson Funk. Paul McCartney pop. Yes. Jacko Pistorius, jazz fusion, whatever. Absolutely. So I would say they're, they're, uh, they're your go-to guys, and they all used four-string basses. None mm. of that blooming cricket bat with 20 strings on. Job coffee tables. Coffee tables. Like, that's what I call them, exactly. Mm. Coffee coffee table basses. Oh, I, I don't... Horrible. I don't anyway, get it. So, um, yeah, I, I, I would... I actually learned a few of the songs just in case, but I never got the call. They gave it to us. Maybe Pino was seen as a better bet. I don't know. But, uh, you I know, don't, he's, a, he's a fairly solid player. And, um, and, uh, Bruce. Bruce. Yeah. Pino Palladino is fabulous and yeah. a tremendous fretless player. Yeah. Very, very distinctive style. I, I love his phrasing. Yeah. And, you know, the, the work that he's done with Joan Armatrady and yeah. Paul Young, dot, yeah. dot, dot, yeah. is phenomenal. Yeah. But when I think about somebody who yeah, carries the spirit of end to it, so yeah, he wouldn't come to mind. Yeah, I would have, um, I would have thought I'd have, you know, but maybe... <laughs> Maybe it's, a, you know, maybe a bit too volatile. Maybe my reputation preceded me, or who knows? I, mean, uh, uh, you I know. think you would have 
been a perfect fit. Incidentally, I've seen the Pina Palladino version of The Who quite recently. Is in December. They're not good now. I enjoy seeing Pete Townsend up there. They're they're well served by Zach Starkey. I don't like him using a Strat. I think Roger Dolce's struggling a bit. He he Um, is a little bit. um, I don't like the extra guitars and keyboards and stuff. And and bless him, I know Pete Towns said they just want me to keep cranking out the power chords till I keel over and die on stage. And I guess in a way they do but I mean you wouldn't you wouldn't begrudge him his elder statesmanship you know certainly and, not and, and all that for what he's done he's made a massive 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 contribution but um I can't help and like most like a lot of people I can't you know you just can't help comparing and contrasting and it's like you know footballers isn't it you know mm. it's like when you see Wayne Rooney going off a bit and and you think oh he's not really as good as he was is he you know and he's still got the glimmers of the old self in there but it's not really exciting anymore and <laughs> I think the recruitment of Pina Palladino again love his bass playing mm. in the same way that Kenny Jones all the bands that he yeah. played with before. Yeah. No issue with those bands at all. But Kenny Jones no. was, was not the no. ideal replacement no, for so, Keith Moon. No, no, no. And, no. and the poor lad was no. really thrown in at the deep end. No. He's it, from it, a different school. No. Well, it's weird. I mean, who had a lead, a lead drummer, a lead bass player and a rhythm guitarist who held it together? And I'm wondering whether or not Pete... Townsend in his own way, in the same way that he wanted to have perhaps a less volatile mm. percussionist behind him, recruited somebody oh, who was a, a yeah. easier to. It must have been tame. exhausting. I mean, on mm. that on that keeping tour, up with that on that tour we did with them, there were fights every night. You know, furniture getting smashed and this, and fights going on, and then you know, halfway through the set they'd be grinning at each other again, and then it would all go off again the next night and. And um, so, yeah, he probably did. They probably had that. I mean, John was used to arrive and leave. He used to arrive before the gig and leave after the gig. No one ever saw him. He used to turn up in a chauffeur-driven Cadillac, go up on stage and then clear off it. But maybe he'd, you know, he'd already had enough. You don't know what, um, what uh, you know, the, the dynamic was certainly pretty dynamic in that band. And I should imagine Pete, Pete Townsend wanted a quiet life just like, you know, Mr. Costello did. Indeed, there are there are parallels. So, yeah. I, I'm really touched by the fact that you did the pilgrimage to Stowe on the Ward. I yeah. had to climb over the wall. Yeah. I felt quite weird doing it, but yeah. uh, Entwistle's passing really did hit me. And uh, talk about an architect, you know, for rock bass playing. Yeah, and I, I, that fact, style, I can't tremendous. think. Of, I can't think of um, anybody else I've actually done that for, made a pilgrimage for. You know, that's a very sweet. Story. Yeah. Um, um, well, there was absolutely, you know, it might, might be the first time I've told anybody. Mm. I can't even think I told anybody particularly, but I just went up there and just, you know, nodded to the, you know, to, to, to the various people. I'm mean, not going to start going up and saying, oh, you know, I just thought I just want to make be there for an hour or two just because, you know. 
initially I didn't know exactly where the house was, and yeah. myself and uh, well, a the friend. Well, the house, the front of the house looks over the valley, and there's a kind yes. of side entrance further up the hill, isn't there? Yes. To the side, yeah. Um, which was, uh, the, the gate was blocked, so I found yeah. uh, an area that was reasonably well covered, well, still yeah. on the A road, yeah. and uh, jumped over there. Yeah, it's the first time that I've done that type of pilgrimage. I, I suppose in, in a way that um, when... David Bowie passed away, that people went to former yeah. homes yeah. of of his and places that were important in his life yeah. and uh, and paid their respects. You, you do what you have to do. Back to yourself and The Who. Did you yeah. make contact with them to indicate that you were available? Not, not, none, not uh, none of the band members, just the management. Right. And I suspect they probably had a thousand calls, you know, from this people saying, oh, I'll do it, you know. And so it probably just got lost betwixt and between, even though, I'm, you know, I've met Pete Townsend a few times by that point. And he actually, when I did a did a session with him doing Paul McCartney's rock wow. orchestra thing. Yes. Uh, and, and that with, where there were, um, it was his kind of version of... Um, a Phil Spector session where there was three of everything, three bass players, three drummers, loaded guitarists, and and Pete Townsend, he, you know, could come up to me and said he thought that, uh, he said, uh, you know, Elvis and Detractions was a very important band in in his, by his estimation, and I said, well, thank you very much and everything, and thank you, Pete. And I I, I met I met you when I was fifteen, and I. And, and I said, have you got any, any trips for an up-and-coming musician? And he said, yeah, just take loads of drugs. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, uh, Chief Moon obviously listened. Yeah, so, um, crikey, that was, and that was the, the Who as a club band. They didn't even get through one number before they trashed the equipment. It was that immediate. I, it was, I thought they that was... came on stage, did hmm. uh, did a couple of rounds of, of uh, the riff of Green Onion, smashed everything up, came on two hours late, left an hour early, and uh, was bet one of the best gigs I've ever seen. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> and then, of course, when I, when their first album came out, I thought, well, it's just going to be like mayhem, you know. You thought it was, and and it was actually really good pop songs. Well-crafted tunes, my well word. Well-crafted tunes. And well-delivered. The, kid, the and kids are all right. And yeah, gorgeous yeah. and great harmonies. Sensa- I can see for miles. That's later, oh. but, I mean, that is a sensational pop record. I listen to that nowadays, and I think that is absolutely top. Symphonic draw, you know? drumming, the yeah, uh, really yeah. bitey bass, um, the vocals are great. Chord voicings, everything. And the, the, the sound as well, the production, the, there's a, a real gutsiness and a grunt to it that recordings... It's still exciting. I can see for miles and miles and miles and miles and miles. Oh, yeah. yeah, just if, if I'm in a... In, a pub or a club or a music venue and they put that on mm. I, I will stop what I'm doing there are and one hear or two that. records that make you stop if you do a top ten records that make you stop in your tracks <clears throat> Goodness. you know and probably I can see for miles is more than my generation or won't get fooled again that's just like one of those whoa guitar in the upper register punctuating the uh, the outro is a thing of beauty dynamically it's amazing yeah it likes uh, lots of suspense suspensions doesn't he mm. suspended chords and suspended and 
suspended harmonies and things, yeah. But it's he's it's good. It's good stuff. Back to Rockestra. to wear specific kinds of outfits but Pete Townsend said no well we did a gig a benefit concert for Campuchia as it's now as it's called now isn't it um, uh, and uh, he wanted everyone in these silver lamp sparkly suits with top hats and Pete Townsend refused obviously being a man of impeccable taste so he went on in his suit Paul McCartney stuck a t- hat on his head which lasted about one nanosecond before it went hurtling into the crowd. But, but yeah, that was... Uh, yeah. And there's a, a bit of a sombre note when you were preparing for it where Ronnie Lane was due to yeah. be one of the bassists. Yeah. And he, he politely said, oh, I'll leave you to he it, said, mate. I'll, and leave, I'll leave you to it. And I thought, well, what's... You know, um, yeah. Well, MS. It was, yeah, it was later I found out that he was struggling with uh, MS, yeah. But I mean, he did the, some of his bass lines um, um, stay with me. I like that one, that chromatic run up. I love that bass line, that, run, that line. Build. That line, I think I've stolen that one. I've stolen most of the ones I like. <laughs> <laughs> Talking of bass lines and a certain band called Elvis Costello and the attractions, the anatomy of a song and how a song gets presented and developed yeah. is something that interests me. Yeah. And one of the, the most loved songs from the early attractions era is and has it has an amazing bass line is pump it up right how was that song presented to you were you ever dictated a part in terms of what the bass line should be because that no. is a, a no. the bass no. is well and truly yeah. at the forefront of the feel of that track yeah i know that apparently you state in the book that it was written lyrically as an answer to ian during the blockheads sex and drugs and, and rock and roll. roll yeah so when it was presented to you is it just was he just doing like a Bob Dylan subterranean homesick blues? Sort of. Um, it was learned the song. I think the first time I ever heard the song was um, at the sound check on the Stiff tour at Lancaster University, and we worked it up there. The da 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 riff is um, stolen from the Dams. Neat, neat, neat. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> so that was a straight lift. Um, keeping it in the stiff family. Yeah, keeping it in the family. Keeping Nick Lowe's royalties <laughs> flowing. Nick Lowe very uh, happy. The, 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 the bass line to the body of the song is um, a hybrid riff. Well, so Elvis came up with the, with the chords... And and you know which which is uh, was basically two chords, isn't it? It's mm. uh, it's E and B. Um, so he's sort of thrashing away on, and, and and I thought, well, it needs a riff, obviously, um, to give it some propulsion and shape and whatever. So we got a, 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 the riff itself is um, it's rhythmically the same as the Price of Love by the Everly Brothers. <laughs> Dun, dun, ding, 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 which uh, Brian, uh, right, Brian Ferry did a version of that, didn't he? Yes. The Price of Love. So, yes. so you know the ding, 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 ding. So that's the Price of Love by the Everly Brothers, but it's the notes 
of Richard Helen the Voidoids You've Got to Lose. So you take those notes and put it to that other rhythm. So you So it's basically two riffs into one and then so you've got you really got me to just to stick the fill the last space in tour de force so it's a tour de force of three three good riffs uh, cobbled together into one and then the chorus is um, a variation on In The Mood. Which is the, the Joe Lo... Oh, yes. It's... That's... <laughs> so, which is... Um, which was Glenn Miller and the Joe Loss Orchestra's signature tune and Elvis's dad... Uh, Ross McManus sang with the Joe Loss Orchestra, so it was a kind of. It was your nod it was to a the nod to, nod to to Dad, yeah. My um, so, goodness. Yeah, so it's there's it's yeah it's um you know you've got to steal from wherever you can really steal from the good stuff. Yeah, steal from the good stuff. Uh, a bad writer plagiarizes, a good writer steals. Yeah, absolutely, and you did yeah. it, and then some. You had a, a specific rhythm that inspired you that would lead me to believe that. You came up with a bass line, and then Pete Thomas on drums followed that. So it implied the rhythm, or did you uh, I think, jam I think, that out together? I think it was probably. I think the sort of tom tom, boom 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 boom. You know, came. I don't know which came first, to be honest. Uh, I should have. Th- I would have thought that. Um, I would have thought that if I'd done the bass like that, he'd have started drumming like that, and if he'd have started drumming like that, I'd have worked out a bass riff that went with it. I can't honestly say which came first, you know, the chicken or the egg in this case. It all works, and that's the most important thing. It works, yeah. I come from a lefty headspace that you give credit where credit is due. If somebody has been integral to the formation of a song, they should... Be yeah. duly noted. It depends whether you. I mean, whether you call the chords and the word, the chords and the words of the song, aren't they? And everything else is arrangement, unless it's kind of. There's a. There are times when the riff, like, and with obviously with Chelsea as well as Pump It Up, where the riff kind of almost defines the. Defines is is the signature of the song to a de, to to an extent. I I don't mind that uh, I don't mind that so so much because we were always given um, you know points for coming up with these ideas. Right. You know we were we were given. Um, Profit participation, as it were. Was that straight across the board for everything, or for those songs that uh, for you were deemed? Albums, for the albums, for the albums. So yeah. So if we, so what we came up with was considered arranging, really, right. and, and contrib- you know, contributing. The only thing that did kind of knock me a bit was was when um, was when you know when people started sampling the riff, but 
I've just got all the uh, the got the ah. you know the royalties for the sample of the riff, you mm. know. And I think, well, yeah, there you go. This is why I feel it's far too simplistic to say that the song is just about the the chords and the vocals. With a song where there's there's not a great deal of movement in terms of uh, the chord structure, the the the, the bass is implying uh, rhythm and and melody. Mm. If you'd ask any Elvis Costello and the Attractions fan to mm. hum the song, mm. they would be humming the bass line to pump it up, and then you know. The vocal part is great. The song is fantastic, and it's a, a band absolutely delivering an mm. energetic performance. I would have thought that you'd be given more than just um, creative arrangement participation. Well, yeah, well, that's all water under the bridge now. So, but uh, yeah, I mean, Nike did offer him a million dollars for the track for an ad, right? And he turned it down. So, indeed, indeed. I might have been a bit cross if you got a million for it with that. But <laughs> no, it's a bit... Thank it's goodness a, he said no. No, um, there are one or two one or two tracks where they that lean quite heavily on the bass. And, and, a, and a lot of the time, you know, on stage, the bass used to carry a lot of the rhythm and melody while people were just punctuating and dinging and donging and stuff. And But that's, you know, it works both ways, works all ways round. The dynamic of yourself and Elvis Costello in terms of how it comes across in Rough Notes mm-hmm. is of a very, initially, and certainly for the first part of the band, thinking about the 77 to mm-hmm. 87 era mm-hmm. as being part one, and then the, mm-hmm. the 1990s, 94 to 96, as being part two. But the early years were quite um, brotherly mm. and were, you know, you were... Often you'd, from the sounds of it, you'd be sharing rooms together when you're on the road Mm. and very brotherly in the sense of standing shoulder to shoulder and often with siblings and in a way bands always have a a bit of a sibling-like relationship. Mm. If a real friend standing shoulder to shoulder is sometimes going to tell that friend things that they might not want to hear for... Mm. The betterment of them it, it could be highlighting personality issues it could be highlighting substance issues mm. and a, it sounds as though you in looking out after your friend did that mm. and initially it sounds as though it was appreciated but that later on it may have been held against yourself mm. for in the idea that you may have been taking the high ground yeah yeah i guess there's uh yeah, I, I, I mean, I can't really add anything to what you've said there. I think you've kind of got a, a good sense of that that dynamic. It's, it's, it's a complex, it's a comp, it's a funny relationship we had. We were, we were, despite what anybody says, me or him, we were, you know, we did room for four years, and we were, we were made, and we still went out to lunch together. I mean, I've spent, I've spent what an hour or two with you. Mm. I would be doing that all day, travelling, all sound checking, eating lunch, eating dinner, going to the hotel, sharing a room, getting up, going to the airport. I'd be doing that with you every day for yeah, for nearly four years. Mm. You know, and imagine, see how we we get we're getting on fine mm. for an hour or two. See how we get on after. A, a, a whole day, and then another whole day, and then a whole 
you know, 10 American tours and uh, see how the dynamic changes and then it goes into the 10th year and it, whatever. It's, it's a long, long time and, the, and, and it's um, the dynamic changes. I mean, there's, there, was a, there was definitely some kind of rivalry there. And I have to ask myself, am I, you know, people say, oh, he was jealous of you because blah, blah, blah. And I say, well, no, I might have been jealous. You know, was I jealous of him because he can write songs? Was I jealous of him because he was the front man? Not, I didn't want to be a front man, didn't want to be a singer. Uh, I certainly wished I could write songs, but I can write prose, you know, and, and I've got no issues with putting my prose up against his any time, you know, so... Uh, I'd, I'd concede he's, <laughs> he's a good songwriter and I'm not a songwriter um, but he just I got the feeling that I at the end not talking about early on when we were everybody was in I just got the feeling that he really wanted to be the top dog undisputed mm. and I was probably disputing it Whereas the others were just letting him, it's his train set, let him, you know. Anything for an easy life and well, it's as, yeah. a, a, I don't want to say gravy train, that sounds insensitive, somebody but it's said, a, an income stream. As somebody said to me on, uh, on Facebook yesterday, did you, did you uh, in order to make it go, did, 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 you know, did you just, did you have to let it go? And I said, yeah, you had to let it go to make it go, if you see what I mean. But mm. if you if you didn't let it go, then it wouldn't, you know. It, it was, I don't know. I mean, I've had people say, you know, g g writing c g classical, classic dissertations on narcissism, pointing out to me, to me why, why he couldn't stand this, you know, sibling rivalry, which it almost becomes at a certain point, or, or, or criticism. You know, which, which, as you say, in the early days is is banter and looking out for each other, mm. and then it becomes kind of, you know, it, I think he, the dynamic certainly changed when he decided to go classical. You know, when he decided to become an elder statesman or a cultural, a culture, you know, a cultural figurehead, you know, and and do the going to do the opera stuff and the string quartets, and that's when Jake went, for instance, our manager, and and um, and a lot of things changed at that point. I think he was, I think he'd always had the long game in mind, anyway. But I think that's possibly when. We were definitely not. That, I don't know if we were ever a band in in his eyes, in his his estimation. Anyway, I think he always had a long game in mind, and but that was definitely the the time that the band was. You know, the band was killed off. You know, well, I suppose contemporaries were doing similar things. Paul Weller yes. disbanding the jam to then yes. do style yes. council. Yes, yes. You yeah. know, it's going to obviously, you know, that, that must have, have resonated. I suppose that it's a dynamic with relationships that the things which attract people to each other can sometimes be the very same things that also cause them to, uh, well, to have issues and yeah, to be yeah, a source yeah, of tension is, yeah. and, and problems. And from the sounds of it, that towards the end of your tenure with the attractions, mm. that that was 
clearly happening being accused of camping and up because yeah. you did a, a different variation well, well, on a song and played the the riff with he did appropriately a, he did a he we did a, a, a the original version of a can't stand up for falling down as a three four soul ballad and uh, we were doing it at a gig in spain and he he kind of you know and i've tasted and i did a little guitar fill that how dare you yeah well i thought he would maybe i mean this let's try and be as objective as possible about it he he, you know he accused me of camping it up and saying i don't want you camping it up on stage tomorrow as he said in tonight he said the next day um yeah i was accused of camping up now maybe maybe i was taking the mickey because i thought he was being a bit melodramatic because I've always, geez, I'm going to have to say something fairly provocative at this point. I've always thought he kind of, he gives a performance and it can be passionate, but it, as it never quite comes from, he's not a soul singer. I mean, he knows how to emote, which is different to, you know, singing from right from the heart. It's a different it's a different genre, it's a different sport, it's a different yeah. game, it's and a different world. And he was world. singing that and I thought, you're just being melodramatic mm. rather than sing. So I just put in this, this like, blues lick that, you know, I think he was being... Anyway, I put this blues lick in and I thought, maybe I was taking the mickey and maybe he was right. I was, you know... And but that kind of that sounds like a minor minor thing to to um, to trigger off my permanent demise. But then again, it was just the kind of you know one of many things, last straw, you know, along with everything else. And it's it's it was the kind of moment that you know the game's up. You know, you think, nah. This isn't working. We worked for a couple of years and it's gone weird again. It was also during an era in which automation in the studio and um, things being programmed were becoming a a much easier prospect. Mm -hmm. And it sounds that he was also going through a bit of an identity crisis in terms of, you know, what to do and placing blame close to home. I think all that identity crisis business happened when the band split up the first time in 88, when mm. he went so, when he did his solo tours and when he started, um, you know, when he did King of America and had two bands, um, basically had two, two separate bands on the go in the studio, Never the Twain Shall Meet. So that, yeah, um, I think, and then he went off and did, 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 did you know, his, um, his string quartets and everything. Got mm. the band together. We did. We did a good. We had a good year. We did a good, a good tour, and you know, enjoyed each other's company. And then, it's a bit like, um, you know, it's like a dysfun- a dysfunctional thing you know once you you, you realize why it worked and then you realize why it stopped working all over again <laughs> you know anything um and doing how many time you know how many times some people do that you know marry the same so like a bloke who marries five identical wives goodness you know, yes you uh, and you don't ask what was wrong with the wives clint eastwood comes to mind <laughs> yeah well a lot, a lot yeah a lot of people come to mind rod stewart and oh goodness yeah they all yeah, look alike as lady well lady blondes mm. 
goodness. The from the intervening years in yeah. between Eight. attractions yeah. number one yeah. and attractions number two, yeah. Elvis Costello wrote a, a song which is believed to be a response to the big oh, yeah. wheel. Yeah, how to be dumb. Discuss. An incredibly astute pun on the expression how to be dumb. <laughs> Double meaning. Do you know how to be dumb, i.e. stupid? <laughs> or do you know how to be dumb, i.e. shut up? <laughs> End of. <laughs> I mean, there's a few, uh, there's a few kind of choice um, things, you know, about being a, a pasty-faced dilettante and, and rolling over. And yeah, I was actually called the funniest fucker in the world in the song, which I thought was a high accolade, but not one I could... I could take in all good grace because I'd already met him. John, John Cooper, Cooper Clark. Clark. Yes. He's the funniest fucker in the world. I agree with you on that. <laughs> Big fan. Without a doubt, if you've ever spent time in his company, he just laughed from the beginning to the end of the day. Lovely man as well. Lovely, very nice, very lo- gentle yeah, lovely figure. Guy. Yeah. When you returned for... I keep thinking Spiles at Mark too. When you, when you return for yeah. the 1994 to 96 version of Elvis Costello and the attractions, did you have that chat about Big Wheel and how to be dumb? No. So it was the elephant in the room in a way. No, 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 it wasn't actually. It was like I wrote the book, he wrote the song, that was it. Oh, so it was... It the, wasn't, there was no residual fallout from it. Counterbalance. Yeah, it was like... Well, yeah, it was, there was no kind of, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't the opening salvos of anything. It was, it was, uh, it was, never came up. Never really came up. I mean, um, that was it. <laughs> This is a weird question, and it's something that I may have read between the lines with yeah. in terms of rough notes. And but I'm just throwing this out there. During the final tours that you did in the the '90s, Elvis Costello was with Cot O'Riordan, common law marriage, although they weren't yeah. officially yeah. Uh, married. Yeah. And I sense. Please tell me if I'm wrong. I sense that she egged him on to be upset with yourself and to be wound up. Would this yeah, be correct? He would. She was a, I, I took a lot of stuff out, actually, because I didn't want it to be about her. But I would say she... You see, there was a... I mentioned a gig where she, she actually used to fall out with him as well, but she, she was instrumental in sacking Jake. She was instrumental in getting rid of um, his American band with James Burton and, you know, the, the impeccable musicians who backed Elvis, the original Elvis mm. Presley, called them a bunch of old men and got rid of the lighting guy, and then she kind of, uh, at some point, turned her attention to me because I was not going to defer to her. I mean, she would stand with her back, like, six inches away from you in the lift. You know, she would she would do things like that, you know, very disres- disrespectful things. And um, I wasn't going to defer to her like most people did because she was his missus. And, um, you know, at one point, I think... This was after the uh, after the um, don't camp it up incident. I think this is you know she came into our dressing room for a get some drinks and things, and I said, um, 
can I help you? She said, you can't even help yourself, she said. And I thought, well, you know, perhaps I didn't say, can I help you in, a, in an interesting, you know, I said, can I help you, dear? You know, it would have pro- would pro- probably been as equally as patronising. <laughs> and she said, you can't help yourself, you know. So, so I just went <laughs> to her and I thought, that's definitely done it now. That planted the that seed. Has de- that has definitely done it, you know, because you don't do that to... The boss's wife, you know, or right. not that he was boss of anyone but himself, and she was the boss of him anyway. But, but uh, she would, she, she would did. Not only did she, I, I took all this out of the book, but maybe to hell with it, you know. I mean, she, she did it to Elvis's mother, as well. She would, he would, she would. Elvis's mum would come into the room and she would get up and walk out. And I said, "What's right. going on there? What's gone on there?" I said, "What? What?" She said, "Oh, she's just." Off on one. I mean, she left. She left him for half the tour and went off to a hotel and ran up a huge bill. And then when Elvis was, was just the four of us and he would come in our dressing room again instead of having his separate dressing room, everything was normal. The gigs were they were the best gigs we'd done for ages. It, it felt fun, like the original know, dynamic. It, it was wasn't quite there. You know, I, as I say in the book, it felt like somebody a guest who'd turned up to the wrong party but been made welcome anyway. But the road crew had a very cruel name for her, which was a pun on cot. Oh. Um, yeah, it was a... Yeah, well, they, you know, they... Oh, and, and, bless. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to say it, but you can... Yes. You can work it out. Indeed. Yeah. So... And, um, and then... When she, you know, it's like I used to get reports for you know I used to get I had my spies in the camp when I wasn't in the band about what she would do and what they were up to and what you know and all the rest of it. But when when she did finally go, ironically, the reason they gave for their split was that it was due to the rigors of touring or so the disorienting rigors of touring. I thought, well, <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, and. Um, the the fan the made the Elvis Costello information fanzine had a headline on its blog that day saying the witch is dead. So it, ding dong. I don't think it. You know. I mean, and the funny thing was, I told you the iron, irony is the first time I met her was when Elvis said, "Oh, you should see the bass player of the Pogue. She's right up your street." He said, "She's a, you know." And, <laughs> and who'd have thought that's how it, you know, who'd have thought it would have gone that way? Goodness. Yeah, I know. Oh, I mean, I used to give up. She used to live in, she used to turn up at my house in Chiswick about midnight or one in the morning, walking back from some do in London, knock on the door, and I'd give her a lift to Hounslow where she lived because she, she didn't want to get a cab, so I'd drive her home and come back. And I thought... People don't know all that stuff, you they know. They do now. Well, they do now, but I mean, it's it's trivia. It's trivia, but I guess, I guess it gives a, a more rounded. I wanted in that book to try and give a more rounded picture. You know, it's not. Oh, they hate each other. He fell out over money. You know, which is what mm. I read the other day. And I go, oh, for crying out loud! You know, it's like Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor. Do you imagine they didn't have a few four-hour-long conversations? And- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All of the difficult issues that you dealt with dynamically with all of the bands are handled with dignity in the book, and there's respect. And I, you- I just I don't want it to come over as bitter, but I don't want it to come over as whitewashed. Mm. And that's the balance I'm trying to say. You know, I I respect that we were friends, and we're you know I don't I don't see that we're enemies 
I just think it, it, you know, it's. I mean, to be here's a good thing when. When David Bowie died recently, Elvis went on and put a very short thing on Facebook saying, a, a, a wonderful melodicist, a wonderful lyricist and a very elegant gentleman. And I just put up, I said, for once I agree with the old bastard. <laughs> and I thought, that's, at least we can share, absolutely share a, a, a chord on that. You know, I thought he said it well and I would have said the same thing, so why fall out? You know, I thought, here's a good opportunity to sort of at least agree with him on something, mm. you know, rather than writing songs and bloody books about each other. I said, well, I agree, he was. Well said, well spoken, you know. It was beautifully put. I saw yeah, that. Well put. I saw that posting and I thought that was just, it, it was just very eloquent. Kate, and it, Bush's, uh, Kate Bush's post was really good. She said it really well. Rick Wakeman's instrumental Life on Mars was really good. You don't need statues. You don't need all this, that and the other. Mm. You just, you know, the simple heartfelt um, acknowledgements were the most powerful. 2003 Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Oh, yeah. I've seen the footage from Elvis's acceptance speech. Yeah. And... Firstly, I think it's a tribute to yourself that when you, your services were no longer needed, yeah. that the name, the attractions had been, you know, put to the side. I agree. And that's, you know, handled with great dignity and also shows... Uh, that showed a bit of class, I agree. I uh, agree. Absolutely. Yeah. And yourself being invited there showed class as well. I know there have been other bands where there have been issues well, in the past, yeah, Blondie, yeah, yeah. Um, where past members were not necessarily welcome on yeah. stage. And with all of that class, and also with a decent amount of water on under the bridge, yeah. between was it seven years between the last time that you played with him and yeah. being in Cleveland, that you were on stage uh, yeah. there to be there for the uh, receiving in, the uh, induction. Yeah. I found it to be uncomfortable viewing that Elvis Costello mentioned the fact that you and he that it's no secret that you guys didn't get on and I didn't feel it was necessary did yeah. you how did you feel at the time I mean in in the footage you look uncomfortable there, there seems to be tension there well I didn't meet him or speak to him before before you know I I told when I was told about it I said look if it makes it easier I won't sit on your guys tables because he'd got remarried to this new wife and I didn't know her and I thought you know don't start introduce you know I said look I'll go and sit with someone you know well I'll just go up and get my gong you know but I'm going I'm gonna go so you figure out the logistics uh, so I didn't actually I went out to dinner with Steve Naive the night before, I, but I didn't meet, um, I, I didn't see Elvis until we were assembled at the side of the stage to go up for the gong, and I didn't see him, didn't speak to him afterwards. In fact, fun. he totally blanked me afterwards. Ooh. He completely looked through me when I walked, you know, as if I wasn't there after after we'd been up and and, and you do know, you know the story where he s suspected because he got my statue by mistake and I got his ah, yes. and then I couldn't I said I went, went to, to his uh, PA to try and get him swapped over and it I suspect mine had been dashed to the ground in pieces um, I didn't see it so I can't say but 
there was that could be the only reason it couldn't be given to me. It just, um, it just weird that seven years on and such water. I didn't under hear the. the I, I didn't hear the bit his speech actually. I didn't hear. I, I just it was. I thought it was pretty obvious that um, you know when Elton John said, "I don't know much about the attraction, so I'm just going to talk about Elvis." I thought, well, they're thick as thieves. They've been to each other's wedding and all the rest of it. They just come up with that. To, it's the elephant in the room won't be mentioned at all, you mm. know. So, um, so, and that's what I, you know, when I my I didn't make a speech. I just said thanks for the memories. That's it, you know, because the the, the you know the memories of that when when they played the clip of um, you know they they, they played a, cl- a clip of um, a montage of um, some of our you know tunes, radio, radio, and all the rest of it. And I thought, yeah, good band. You know, and then I watched them, the imposters go up, and then I thought, yeah, not so good band. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's up to other people to make their mind up, but uh, I guess it was like, you know, like the Who at Glastonbury after seeing them in the in the seventies. You know, and and now we think, well, that's what he wants. That's what he's got. You know, he's got a quiet life, like Pete Townsend. And it might keep him alive a few years longer. <laughs> it's a it's a pity because um, everything up until that point seemed to the fan to have been handled with such dignity that mm. um, it, in the back of my head I thought, oh, they they could maybe do a little bit of a a rockestra thing and have two bases on stage. I could have gone well, yeah, I could have gone up and done. Pump it up and peace, love and un- I thought peace, love and understanding would have been a natural, a natural tune to do. Just go up and do one song and that, you know. Particularly in two thousand three. Yeah, well, particularly I now. Think, well, yeah, well, that, yeah, then, yeah, but um, yeah, I, you know, it wouldn't have, wouldn't have killed anybody. But he was, but no, no, it was, uh, um. You know, he, he, I mean, he started, as I on the last tour, he started improvising the lyrics about never, should never have crossed over the bridge he burned in reference to my being, you know, going in the, you know, should never have had him back again type thing, you know. So, there you go. One, on a lighter note with regards <laughs> to... Oh, that's not heavy. <laughs> not at all. On a lighter note... I want to ask He's about... He's not heavy. The, He's my <laughs> former brother. Former brother. In the book, you mentioned some wonderful tales about the the Horace Barlow band. Oh, yeah. Who, I would imagine if there's some listeners in Guernsey, yeah. they would have enjoyed the glories of, of this band. Yeah. This was Elvis Costello and the attractions no, no, Elvis, with a difference. No, it was El- Elvis... Pete and me, yes. or Steve and I, either gone off to in- been involved in some altercation in America or something, or he was missing for some reason. And and uh, so we went and did we did we were booked into a gig in Guernsey, which we did as a three piece. And we Guitar had this, Hero Costello. Well, Loads we had the, the first. Pedals. No, the first set was um, he, we'd just seen the Stray Cats, so we decided to go rockabilly. So I was given a double bass to play, and he played a, a Gretsch, you know, and and we t- t- did the first half of the song, ro- extemporised it rockabilly style. How do you do Bruce Thomas bass lines you, on an upright? 
Not well. My God, yeah, that's... Not well (laughs) is the answer to that. And... Very very badly. But that was only the prelude to Elvis's Guitar Hero um, set where he'd been at and bought every effects pedal known to man. Did he um, use the Gretsch for that set? Something no, tells me no. No, he probably had the strap, you know, right. they hadn't played it left-handed as well. It wouldn't have made any difference if he'd played it left-handed because he could... Ouch. It was... It was, it was uh, a stamp on every every known, you know, pe- sound effect, pedal uh, effect device and... and, and um, crikey. I tell you, there's, there's no... Um, Jesus and Mary chain or silver apples had nothing on that. It was it was sonic mayhem, and um, so so that set came to a, to a close with all the Elvis's lovely Hendrix warbling solos. And and Jake met us at this side of the stage. He said that was bloody awful. <laughs> That's why face. you need you see somebody to stand Just, shoulder to yeah, shoulder. You need someone to tell you because we were all we were all way. Yes, poetry. That was awful. Get back on, do something proper now. Otherwise, you know. You did the one gig only. Yeah. Any recordings of it? None whatsoever. They'd be go- I'd, I wished I had a recording of it because I'd be selling it for a fortune now. I'd love to hear the <laughs> rockabilly versions of the no, no, of the material. So, no. but as a whole, do you agree with the with Jake, the manager? About yeah. uh, it was yeah. On, on a scale of one to ten, it was a half. A half, <laughs> right? Because <laughs> well, there were some lucky people in Guernsey to witness yeah, that. I don't Had know. you been billed as as yeah. Horace Barley or? No, I think Did we might. The EC I think, initials get mentioned. I think we might have said, uh, you know, we might have gone on stage, and obviously everyone recognised him, and he said, "Oh, the Elvis and the Attractions can't play tonight. We're the Horace Barlow Experience or something." But, but <laughs> Horace Barlow Experience. Um, it was an experience. Oh, it it sounds sure. like it. Yeah. And talking of the Channel Islands, I'm going to ask you about some of the promo videos that you guys did, you guys being Elvis Costello and the attractions. Now, I understand that Oliver's Army filmed in Hawaii. That's right. Right, so what's so funny about peace, love and understanding? Video filmed in beautiful Vancouver. Vancouver, And Clubland filmed in Jersey. Yeah. And you had to have makeup applied because you'd been somewhere sunny and wonderful. That was new lace sleeves. Oh, and that right. was in black and white as well. Right. Was that also filmed that in, in Jersey? Jersey? Right. Or were they not filmed at the same same time? I don't think Clubland. so. I'm not right. sure. We did new lace sleeves and another one. One was black and white, one was colour. I think they might have both been done in Jersey. And why Jersey, if you don't mind me asking? Uh, I think we were probably there to do a gig and and we just got the cameras in on the day i just love the idea that with uh, regards to the track clubland yeah. that you know there are clubs everywhere and you went to a club in in jersey do you remember the name of the club oh no <laughs> and, <laughs> and in, in the clubland video yeah you're sporting a candy apple red fender bass six yeah in which you're playing that riff Yeah. Did you play that live or in the studio no. or was that just for the video? I stole Elvis's guitar line for the video. Was the guitar line even done on a bass six or it's just no, the low strings on the guitar? I think it was just done on a low st- guitar strings. I mean, you even had some trem action well, in the video. Well, it's got a tremolo on it, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm not averse to taking stealing the glory. Absolutely, because <laughs> you're, you're yeah. lead bassist on that yeah. track. Well, yeah. 
Yeah, well, it seemed seemed appropriate. I'm going to write a, a second volume of memoirs, which is going to be more of what I did, not what I did on my holidays, but the in-between bits, which is going to be much more um, of the psychological dynamic, you know, like what, what the books we were reading, the interpersonal reactions, what I was doing when I went off, where I was going, what I was doing, what state I was in when I got back to the to the band and, you know, what Elvis would say about what I was doing and, and other incidents that I haven't put in that book, which are a bit more low-key, if you like, or introspective, but, you know, conversations and different things. So Have I you think got it, a provisional title for this or is it early I days? Maybe th- I, I haven't got a provisional title at all, no. I understand that you're a fan of Luke Reinhardt's The Dice Man, which is a book that you know very much explores choice and chance yeah. and intention and fate. Yeah. And with that yeah. interest and that particular kind of dice rolling yeah. uh, dynamic and playing with chance, 1977, you're looking through Melody Maker. Yeah. And you see an advert looking for... How was the band phrased? Uh, rocking pop combo yes. seeks bass player or right. similar, yeah. Right. No rubbish. Indeed. So <laughs> you... you That phone call obviously was, you know, incredibly... Yeah. Well, life-changing. Pivotal. Yeah, pivotal. Pivotal is the word I was looking for. Thank you. Um, it was pivotal because not only did you find Elvis Costello and the attractions, but you also I found... married the girl that answered yeah. the phone, yeah, Suzanne, yeah. Suzanne. You were together for 12, 12 years. 12 years. So longer than the first, or actually Incarnate. almost the exact it length kind of... kind of fizzled out the same time as the band, yeah. That must have been a horrible time yeah. for you, the 1987 uh, era. No, I kind of, um, I, you know, it was when I took off to America and things and... I've got you doing sessions yeah. there. Yeah, and took. I just went over. I was. I got a green card. I was going to go and live there and everything, you know. So, um, no, I was. I was okay, you know. I was. Um, yeah, uh, that'll be in the other book. Oh, more of it because it's. It's only one. The seven years between the two incarnations of the band are treated in one chapter in rough notes. Mm. So I think there'll be, there'll be a lot more of the book in the next one, you know, because I did some, what I think is a more interesting half of my life. It's quite fascinating. And in the the same way that earlier on, I indicated that, you know, this autobiography is very different from others. Because normally there is the pattern with many a sports person's uh, autobiography of the downward spiral. Your life just takes a a different course. And, you know, you you, you know, fighting spirits and the interest in uh, Bruce Lee. But back to the main point, in terms of the roll of the dice and that phone call with Suzanne and you're asking about the band, you're being asked in turn with Elvis Costello on the background yeah. about your musical interests, and you yeah. mention the rumor and Steely Dan. Yeah. And thanks to her saying, yeah. you know, Give him a she, chance. Yeah. She, she says, he, get, she, yeah. he says, get rid of him. And she says, oh, he sounds quite nice. No, get rid of him. You should give people a chance. 
he said. Had yeah, that was, he not uh, listened to yeah. Suzanne? Yeah. Where would your life have gone? Would it have gone towards a very Chuck Rainey, Steely Dan no, no, world? No, I couldn't, I couldn't play like I'd have been. Uh, I was actually, well, you know, at the time that I ended up in the attractions, I was actually looking to get, get in uh, Wilco Johnson's band. Love Wilco. So that's what I was looking at. I mean, I didn't, you know, I had no idea how to get into a major band. I was thought I'd be in, you know, maybe if with a bit of luck, I'd maintain the level I'd, I'd been on, you know, and get another few years out of it. And who knows what, you know, I don't think I ever had a plan. I didn't have a plan. I still don't have a plan. I've never had a plan. Plans uh, are for people who need to make plans. Well, I just don't have a plan about what I'm. You know, I've got. I've got. I've just written a new Bruce Lee book, which I'm very, very happy with. I think it's some of the best stuff I've written, and I've got. I've just written the last chapter of my new memoirs because I've written the last chapter, so I know how to get there when I do oh. the rest of it, rather than not. You know, so I do have a plan as far as that goes, but, but. No, I mean I've never I've never set off and I don't think most people do people don't say in in 19 whatever you know in two well now in 2017 I'm going to meet the woman I'm going to marry and we're going to go and live in Hampstead for, and then we're going to have a child you know nobody plans their life like that does it? it it happens you know it happens by synchronicity or by fate or whatever you want to call it you meet somebody and then something happens and you get most people get their relationships their jobs their houses their everything like that nobody sat down and worked anything out you might have an idea of what you might want to do where you want to good people but it can change go with the flow well yeah or go where the flow needs to take you or if the yeah. flow takes you somewhere dreadful get the fuck yeah. out or, or <laughs> well it's the old you know there are a million and one cliches for all that but it, it, you can you know you can sail against the wind as well so in your head at that time you had your sights on working with Wilco Johnson and instead you joined a a lovely uh, yeah. kind of rocking pop yeah. combo yeah. and found and a wife. I, ironically, I mean, when Pete Thomas was brought over, he was actually... Jake had worked with him in a previous band and had brought... Pete Thomas was hand-picked, you know, was cherry-picked to, to play with, um, was recommended by Jake to Elvis to play in the band and... Jake got Wilco Johnson's record company to pay the airfare on the pretext that he was going to join Wilco's band but didn't, but just managed to get an airfare out of the record company. So, so... Um, oh, those uh, were the days. Those were the days, <laughs> eh? <laughs> Lovely. I'm not being unwelcoming or nothing, but they just need to sling their rock. The one thing I also want to talk about is your experience of working outside of the rocking pop combo world yeah. and dealing with dance music via your oh, right, nephew yeah. Yeah, yeah. and and your the fact that you embrace musical styles which yeah. your average Costello and the Attractions fan might not might appreciate. Not. Yeah. Trance music, for instance. Well, I mean, I've been, I, you know, I go back as far as the Shadows, which was pretty much the the prototype beat group, Cliff Richard and the Shadows, and they were a good band, no mistake about it. And they were very good. Um, 
but I followed the trajectory right through. That's kind of what the books, you know, says. I went went through from the beat group to the, you know, then the blues boom and the psychedelic era and the prog and 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 then um, you know soft rock country, new wave, punk, new wave, uh, right the way through, um, and then. I started working with my nephew, who was a, is a DJ, and we started, um, you know, putting stuff together on the computer, programmed um, dance music, breakbeat, for being technical. Um, but I mean, you know, it was an it was, it was my education, like you know, like when I started learning to play the bass, and I kind of got. You know, got a Yardbirds record or a Rolling Stones, and then I real, you know, I thought, oh no, these were written by guys called Billy Boy Arnold and Muddy Waters. And you go and Chuck Berry, so you'd go and get them. Then you get into Elmore James, and and then you'd start, you know, checking out Chess Records and all, all that education. Now had you know started again in terms of you know, well, what's the difference between a hard house, funky house, you know? <laughs> And, and 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 house and all the rest and uh, and and why is that garage and why is that breakbeat and why is that drum and bass and why is it you know and, two step yeah two step yeah and Dub, dubstep and, and yeah why is it why and and Christ it so if you just put an extra bass drum beat in that gets you know that's a different genre is it oh yeah oh, so anyway but it was good fun because it was. Um, it's mute for a start. It's music, and and I like, I liked constructing it. I mean, it wasn't. I didn't play bass guitar on it because you would often have five different synth basses on a track because they they all do different. What one bass plays one note, another plays another little phrase, and they all work together. The filtering it, gets the filtering into it, and uh, yeah, and uh, and and uh, you you know you'd have sometimes you'd have five different hi-hats going or tambourines or it's just I counted one track and I thought I said how many actual sounds have we got on this on this track and and we counted up all the instruments we stopped when we got to 200 my word yeah Yeah, that's standard in its own way it's it's not so much a a rockestra as a dancestra well yeah it's it's, it's you know if if musicians if the if Brian Wilson had had access to that technology, goodness, yeah. But in a kind of he, you know, they kind of, <laughs> I don't know, you know, it's 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 like I do a, a chapter on the well, I do a little piece on the history of recorded music just to follow that all through, you know, the the, the major turning points like like the multi-track tape machine mm. and then the, and then the computer and things. But I mean, as I say in the book with. With Elvis and the Attractions, we all went steaming down to the studio because they got this new Synclavier in that cost a quarter of a million quid, and it basically does what you could do on the cheapest laptop. Indeed. It? <laughs> it's loads of money. The yeah. cost of a house. You could probably do it on GarageBand on a smartphone or something. Easily, now, yes. You know. It sounds, yeah. sounds like a well-executed uh, yeah. iPhone ringtone. Yeah. And uh, uh, I love the fact that you immerse yourself in... Whatever genre yeah. or movements have taken place, and you know, which recalls, and we were saying off air, 
Yeah. You know, it recalls David Bowie yeah. and and well, David Bowie's uh, yeah embraced every genre, hasn't he, throughout his um, five decade long career, and 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 made a good job of all of them. Absolutely, and uh, goodness, uh, what a horrible passing! And, and you yeah. from being a little kid making your own bass with yeah. eleven frets, yeah, eleven frets, <laughs> and, and bits of a telephone, yeah, to a computer with with I mean, filtering and mm. all, yeah, uh, yeah, it, it is. It's a hell of a leap, yeah. Uh, it's I, a, un, a, an unconceivable leap if you, you know, if you did it any slower, in a way, absolutely. than the, than the natural <laughs> yeah. progression that the, the technology t- took. It's a good thing it's taken 50 years. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be well, too much a, change. Well, that story that um, Eno came into David Bowie in, the, in, the, in Berlin and said, uh, with a copy of uh, Donna Summer... I feel love and said, I've just heard the future of music for the next 15 years. He was right, George uh, Yamaroda. He was right, <laughs> except it was for the next 50 years. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think uh, Eno. Uh, I mean, that was a pivotal record. As was, you know, as was Good Vibrations. Certainly. So as I feel love was a pivotal record. For sure. Absolutely. You can hear the influence of that track in... Now, if you just, now, just put Clubland TV on and there it is still, you know... And just like I can see for miles and miles, you hear that Donna Summer track and it's it's absolutely captivating. It's yeah, a well, beautiful it's, uh, piece it's, of music. I, I was saying earlier about what... There are a few records that still get you excited. I Can See For Miles by The Who still mm. gets me. It's a, it's a stop everything and listen mm. track. So is I Feel Love. And, um, I mean, there are there are a lot of... of um, a lot of that genre that... I, I like... I stop and listen to Sandstorm by Darude or... <laughs> Because <laughs> it's nice. it reminds me of Johnny and the Hurricanes' mm. "Rocking Goose" with a distorted Farfisa organ on it, and you think that that you know there's a there's a continuity there still. The next section is called Gear Geekery, in which Bruce Thomas and Dukey discuss musical equipment. It's not for everybody and lasts about ten minutes. You have been warned. If you are a non-bassist or guitar yeah. player or musician, yeah. this might not be for you. Right. So we're going to be talking about instruments. We're going to be yeah. talking about amps. We're yeah. going to be talking about right. string gauges. Yeah. So, and yeah. as well as the development of the the bass center yeah. profile bass. Yeah. Um, firstly, one of the most iconic instruments that people associate with you is that salmon pink yeah. Fender Precision. Yeah. Which was sadly stolen from the boot of your car in LA, in Los Angeles. Yeah. How did that feel to lose that? I mean, it's were you as attached to it as fans might be of seeing you playing it on those videos and all of those bits of uh, live footage which are doing the rounds? Did you love the instrument as much as your fans do? I, 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 it was my, yeah, it was. I mean, I'd done a lot to it. I tweaked, fiddled with it a lot. I mean, it was, uh, it belonged to a guy in Steel Eye Span, the folk group, all around my hat. hat. 
then it was it was stripped but that back to the wood i mean i i had it like if you some of the first tour i did with elvis it's still natural wood i had it painted so it looked like jet harris's precision and and i think they got the color a bit wrong and made it pinker which is a bit like Hank Marvin Strat. Yeah, they. I mean, yeah, a bit pinker than it should have been. Um, uh, yeah, and I mean, I didn't look after it that well. I used to threw it at Pete Thomas a few times, but um, drummers. Yeah, drummers. They what? You know. And but um, yeah, when it was stolen. But funnily enough, the year before, I'd given it to a guy for some reason. I said oh, I need this restoring. I don't know why, but he resprayed it the right colour which was redder, and he said, oh, and the pickup was wrong. I'd rewound it. I thought, I'd reverse wound that pickup to make it wine. You know, I'd take the wiring off and wind it round the other way, and it does something to the sound. And so it was essentially the soul of it had been removed. So no. when it was, it was already kind of vandalised by a well-meaning guitar tech. Purists. Purist, yeah. Bastard. So when it so when it went, I wasn't altogether surprised, you know, because I'd kind of lost it to a degree anyway. He'd fallen out of love it, it, with it. Well, it had, it was it wasn't you know it had been messed about with. Did you also shave the body? I shaved the body. I shaved the neck. Yeah. What did you do to the body? What did you not like about the original uh, precision uh, I shape? The, the the contouring, the scallops, you know, that for for the, the the bit that goes in at the back for your beer gut and the bit at the fronts for where your forearm rests. I exaggerated them, and I also shaved the neck. Well, obviously thinner. Right. You can't shave it fatter. So <laughs> cl- closer to uh, Fender Jazz. Possibly closer to a uh, Rickenbacker. Oh, right. So it yeah. had quite a thin neck on it yeah, then. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, hence a very fast neck, which yeah. you needed. Yeah. But having said that, gear geekery, I, um, I, I counteracted that. I, for, for some reason, I strung my guitar. It was heavy strung. So instead of using what now you would maybe use 45, 65, 85, 105, 105. gauges, I used, I used a 55 G string. Mm. And, and uh, in fact, I think at some point I maybe have put a D string where the G is and moved them all, moved them all up one. And they were like tow ropes. There was so much tension on those strings, you really hurt to bend them. And I used to bend them. But when I'm doing that string bending, it's like full physical effort to bend the strings. They're not like slinky strings that I'm just, you know, bending. They're, they're over, it's overstrung, and it's really hard work doing what I'm doing. I can imagine my Giandel El Toro has um, flat wounds with uh, 55 to 115. There you go. And they, they are a bit like uh, yeah. train tracks. That's it's, it. um, yeah. there you but go. the sound, my goodness, it's uh, an, an E. Yeah. Yeah. The E has authority to it that yeah. is yeah. Uh, absolutely a, a thing of it, beauty. It does something, definitely. definitely. And were you using round wounds throughout? Yeah. So yeah. you were never ever, even in the, the days of the Roadrunners when you were using an Epiphone Rivoli. I might have had that. Might have had flat wounds on it. Might have done to start with. As soon as they became available, and you wanted twang, you went for it. I went for rotor sounds, didn't I? In those and, days, uh, yeah. And did um, a lot of the um, top end is quite tame on the recordings, which, um, as in the Elvis Costello recordings, mm. which lead a, a lot of uh, gear geekery bass fans of yours to 
possibly incorrectly assume that you used flat wounds. No, well, what I did was I used to stick foam under the strings by the bridge. Right. To, to sort of articulate the notes a bit better. The Carol Kay Yeah, uh, I don't trick. like the long note, you know, heavy density bridge type sound. I like the, yeah, I like the, so yeah. I mean, you can do it. You can do it with left hand damping as well, um, which I, d- I did do. But recording, I think I quite often used to rip a chunk of foam out of a flight case or something and stick it under the strings. And you mention in the book the the Dan Electro Longhorn yeah. that this was your studio base, which from, you also brandished live quite a bit as yeah, well. Yeah, it was it was a studio base from from um, doing the from the Suzanne Vega. Yeah, all the stuff I did with Mitchell and T-Bone, they, they insisted I play a, a Dan Electro Longhorn because they record really well. And I actually used it on a couple of, for a couple of years with the attractions, didn't I? In 94 mm. and 95, as a clip of me using it on a David Letterman show and doing that tour. Elvis made me stop playing it said it was too facile to play. He had to say facile, not easy. Bless. Too facile. It's too facile to play. You are so, ornate so, bugger. So I got, um, so I got, um, yeah, I got um, my P bass back out and I played, when we did Pump It Up, I played it all on the E string. Oh yes! I did the whole did the whole song on one string. I thought that's not facile, is it? <laughs> there you <laughs> go, that Mr. Take, that takes that takes a bit of jumping around as well. But it's like a, it was like a you know skiffle bass <laughs> with, a, with the broom. Absol- yeah, absolutely. Yeah, You're one, going old one string bass. Going to choose yeah, your battles, but you, you can do it on one string, but. You have to be jolly clever. Yeah, and yeah. You, you, uh. you clearly were. <laughs> you clearly are. Yeah. Um, and I also saw you in. If I if I've got it wrong, apologies. Yeah. I think it's the every day I write the book. You're yeah. on a, a wall. wall. A wall. Yeah. And did that make it on any of the recordings? Yeah, that's on. Um, punch the clock. Is that the bass that you used? Yeah, on the whole album. That? Yeah, it sounds pretty good actually. I listened to heard a bit of it somewhere the other day, and I thought, oh, that sounds that's a pretty well nicely recorded bass. That did you use yeah. the active electronics, or did you have a passive version? I think it's active, but I don't think I use the active circuits. You just bypassed it. I just didn't. Those pickups are so good on their own. I didn't flick the switch, no. And you used the same gauge throughout you? You kept the... uh, I I probably kept the normal gauge for them, yeah. Uh, yeah, well, I th- as in your normal, the fifty-five to the, the, no, the norm, the, the the ones that it would come. Oh, with. 45 to forty-five to Yeah, I think I got over the the heavy strung thing. You know, when after the first bout of P bassery, you know, which would be up to punch the clock probably. Right. In fact, and then I used the Dan Electro on the on the nineties albums. In fact, I've just bought a couple of Dan Electros recently, full-scale, long-scale ones. I just bought a Dan... The, the Longhorn that you played with it, with the uh, attractions, yeah. was, was that long-scale as well? Or? No, that's a short-scale really? bass, yeah. 30-inch? 30, 30 yeah. Or, yeah. Right. Yeah, it's what a, a massive sound for a short-scale. Yeah, well, they record, they've got those pickups, you know, they're so basic, they're good. They're really good. There's that You don't need all that alembic you know all that jiggery um, pokery circuitry mm. no they're good those pickups are good and I've just bought um, a Dan Electro Hodad which is a three pickup long scale ver- full scale version 
It looks a bit like a Mosrite, if you know what a Mosrite. Oh, I certainly with do. The yes, with with the lower, the lower cutaway sticks out further, than mm. and I think they look fantastic. I like them. They as look well. more more the right than a fender shape to me. But uh, so, and I've got um, a thing called a Dan Electro rumor which has got a built-in chorus on it. in fact i've done a couple of youtube clips of them so you can check them out oh, well, it's got a built-in chorus yeah. in the dan electro, in the dan electro yeah uh, is it, um, are we talking about the the new the, dan electros that being, these are 1990s were they roughly. still manufactured stateside then or they, they came out about and they had a short run in the early 90s and I got them. I tracked them down, used, and got on eBay, whatever, and got them shipped over. And those lipstick pickups are yeah. uh, clearly El Nico lipstick pickups. Yeah. And the, 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 so that's but the other a short one's got scale like longhorn. The, the, yeah, the 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 short longhorn short scale. These ones are full scale, you know, which are great. So one's got the three lip. It's got uh, selectomatic tone control. Yes. On it. Yeah. And, you know, it's very <laughs> nice. very. It's very retro, and. Um, but the uh, the room has got a P bass type pickup on it, with the chorus. But there, I've just uh, I've just put um, a, yeah. There's you'll have, there are clips on if you look on the Facebook or something I'll or website or the YouTube or something. You'll find something, you know. And you... now we're going to enter the arena of amplification. I have had loads more guitars than that, though. Oh, oh hit me. Come on, let's talk. <laughs> I'll just do, no, the Fender 6 you've covered. I had a Hagstrom 8-string. Oh, the 8-string. Is that the one that I've you I've had used? the Hamer 8-string, Hamer 12-string. That uh, lasted one song. The, those are a real... I had a, Hideous. I had a Hamer... T- Hideous. Um, Nick Lowe sported yeah. one of those for a while, a, a red double cutaway. Um, they're not exactly the most enjoyable instrument. No, they're so. not. They're hideous, but, uh, hideous things. But I've had um, I've had loads of Fender Mustang and... and, and, um, and uh, uh, yeah, I think actually you've Gibson covered EBO the, Gibson EBO in your early EBO, days. Yeah, and uh, and also the you use the eight string on. Is it boy with a problem? I did. Yeah, yeah. And that made it onto a record. Yeah. And the, talking of the the Gibson EBO, do, is that the one that's lurking about in the Hard Rock Cafe in Dubai? Yes, yeah. with the yeah. mudbucker on it. Yeah. Um, which I presume that never made it on an actual... Oh, he couldn't record it. It was subsonic. <laughs> It'd be good for reggae, though. It'd be good for reggae. And um... and propping the door open. <laughs> Bless. Yeah, it's a, a distinctive-looking beast. Yeah. Oh, they look great. They look absolutely amazing, which is why... Which when was you a did... po- it's, a po- it's a top of the pops guitar. Yeah, absolutely. You know? What they used to call a posing pole. In the... In the uh, in yeah. your country and, and western guys, yeah. uh, it was perfect for um, yeah. that and match the yeah. shirts and yeah. all, all that business. And um, with regards to amplification, yeah. on some footage I saw from Anthony H. Wilson's So It Goes, yeah. which I believe was filmed at Eric's in Liverpool, yeah. it looks as though you're using a Music Man amp. But that could have been the backline for that another band. That might have been band. Rockpile's backline. Right. I used at that point. I used a thing called a trainer, trainer monoblock. Oh, um, Canadian yeah, company. Yeah, Canadian amp, trainer monoblock B. Yeah, with some speakers I had made. Is that also what you would have used at uh, Rockplast? Um, it's a black 
front black um, front yeah, face, black metal thing mm. with, a, with a yeah. But they were never, they weren't stacked. They were they were never stacked high. They were there were two cabinets at ground level. If you see what I mean, with oh, an and, on top. I right. never never ran them as a stack on one on top of the other. And we're were using fifteen inch speakers for one eighteen and two twelves in each cabinet. An eighteen, yeah. Because I used 18s when I was in my earlier days with Quiver and stuff like that. I used a Fender 18 with a reflex, kind of Fender, Fender basement top, probably. But I used to like, I used to, um, uh, that, that was the, um, that was pretty much the amp pre-Elvis. Then it was then it was the trainer monoblock. We were sponsored by PV for a while, but I didn't like that stuff. I had an, a long, a good flirtation with um, Ampeg SVT setup. Right. Using two, two uh, eight by ten cabinets. Oh goodness! Um, no doubt for bigger venues yeah. where yeah. the monitor mixes in yeah. those days might not be as good. Yeah. Having two eight by tens is yeah. a thing of beauty. Yeah, and. Um, and then I went on to the um, Trace Elliott, where I used four four by tens. All right. Did you miss the low end thump of the fifteen and the eighteen, or did I the four by tens no, to make I up for it? I don't like fifteens at all. I think they're the worst of both worlds. Right. They're not as deep as eighteens, and not as um, flexible as twelves and tens. Um, I. I like tens. I, there's this new stuff, this Phil Jones stuff that uses eight-inch speakers, like about twenty-eight-inch speakers or something ludicrous, you know, even maybe even more, like forty-eight-inch speakers. It sounds a little bit too, too defined to me. So I, I think sixteens are okay. I Six, think that. Uh, uh, I mean, tens. Sorry, mm, tens. Tens. I think um, even if uh, one of those multi. Um, eight-inch speaker cabinets is ported. It's still going to yeah. to struggle. Yeah. Um, and the the trainer that you had, the, yeah. the monoblock, nice was, was that, that a valve or yeah. right? Yeah. So, and do you remember the wattage on that? Um, four hundred, I think. Four hundred, and it's those trainer amps deliver. Yeah. Four hundred. Yeah. Watt, I mean, I've watt. used four hundred watts, around four hundred watts of amp on stage, pretty much since. Whatever you know, loads of headroom. Yeah, but not in the very early days, obviously. But you were, you were, I mean, even in the Roadrunners, I had four eighteens. You had four eighteens in the Roadrunners. <laughs> My word, where are they now? And the Selma treble and bass top. Uh, did you um, link them up at the lead between I the two so you I could did, use both I think channels? I did it um, b- b- bottom bottom cabinets bassier than the than the top ones toppier. Nice, know, like well, John Entwistle. Yeah, I, I was thinking the same thing yeah. just now. Did yeah. you? Um, do you still own um, any of these old cabs? No, I've got nothing. <laughs> got no amp. So I've got one um, Trace Elliott Studio amp, um, two Dan Electros, and, a, and one of my Profile signature basses, which is like the P bass. And talking which, of the Profile bass, yeah. this is modelled on your famous salmon yeah. pink. Instrument, yeah, it is. Yeah. And did Barry uh, Morehouse from the Bass yeah. Centre contact you about it? Uh, I I rang him because I I'd bought loads of vintage P basses, mid nineteen sixties 
pre-CBS basis and I still couldn't find one that I really liked. I was thinking of... of um, Get you know, getting and making one and distressing it. I was thinking of all sorts, of, and then I thought, I know, I'm just going to make my own bass. And and I told him, I said, have you got or have you got you know? I told him what I was doing, and I was going to sell my old or my old P basses via him. And he said, oh, if you want to make a bass, you might not be the only person who who'd like one. You know, there might be other people. Let, do you want to collaborate on doing you know? reproducing it so we went down the whole thing where i was actually going to reproduce it scratch for scratch you know and so there was a little dent by the fifth fret you know and i thought that's ridiculous we don't want to do that we just want something that's as nice to play as what i got so we just started we started with his six think he got a 64p bass and um and then you know how you can do this 3D printing now. Yes, yeah, we got, CAD. Yeah, we got, we got this um, Korean firm can do it in wood. So we Blimey. could basically clone clone that a guitar, a, a 65p bass. Then I got to work with a sander and, and, and uh, you know, mixing paint and things. And eventually, after going around lots of different firms that were going to charge like two and a half thousand to do a guitar and in and different things, we finally got got one that's you know worked out right with the right electrics, the right neck, the right etc. And it's a really nice thing to play. I mean, I got um, a guy from Bass Guitar Magazine came round to interview me a few weeks ago, and I gave it to him to play, and he wouldn't give it back. To, he took it away. He took it away and did the two-page review. And I said, "Well, he might, you know." I said, "You want it, don't you?" <laughs> it's so much fun to play. I said, "Go on, then. I'll get another one." Dare I ask? Yeah. Are they strong in your proper? No, they're strong in forty-five, forty-five, one hundred and five, yeah, and which is what I would use now, anyway. Right. Yeah, and originally when I first heard about these um, being developed mm. there was talk about there being two different versions yeah, one we, being the elite um, yeah. take on it and then another being entry level on the website I've only seen just the one yeah. version well, what we've done is is if you're going to have an elite guitar for two and a half grand you're basically not going to buy a signature model you're probably going to do your own thing you know you're probably going to you probably have vintage. some pretty you, it's like a bespoke suit you're going to go and you know you don't sell you, you can't do a bespoke thing off the peg if you see what i mean mm. you're going to going to sort yourself out uh entry level well i thought we'd for a bit more we could do what i call i guess what you call a professional level which means it's a bit more expensive than entry level but if you start with that it'll see you through for as long as you like you know you can start you can learn to play on it and you can use it in the studio or on tour and it'll in and you can you know i look at it the way i buy bikes you know i buy buy bicycles you make sure it's got the right frame and bits and all the rest of it you change the saddle and the pedals and bits and bobs mm. on the you know some of the peripherals and i thought yeah you can change the bridge you can change the strings you can do this you can put more expensive machine heads on it if you like but basically the thing plays properly you know it plays just to play a, ba a good test if you just pick up a bass acoustically and twang it and it just all feels solid and right and and you know it's got that kind of 
kind of thing. You don't need to necessarily put it through an amp to enjoy playing it. It's resonant. It's got that resonance in it, yeah. And it sounds Substance. brilliant in the YouTube clips I've seen of yourself using yeah. it. So it's um, so I'm really pleased to hear that you've had a signature I mean, model no, being developed that yeah, you're genuinely excited about. Which... Yeah, there's no special mic here. I mean, it's just a GoPro, you know. Set oh, so up. that's just... There's no, I'm not using a special mic to enhance it. It's just recording off of a little... You know, GoPro camera. So, and did they duplicate the pickups to be reverse wound as yeah, your spec? We, yeah. And yeah. where were those sourced from? Do you know the company that uh, um, some of some of them bases might have Seymour Duncan's on. Some might might have um, found. We found some Korean pickups. That are, believe it or not, the <laughs> Koreans do, <laughs> do good bases. You know, they do better than they do. We did we did three bases like that. We did a, a, a what the entry level, the professional model, and and the bespoke the elite model. And we looked at them. The elite model was would have cost at least two and a half thousand, and it had been made in England. The um, there was a Bavarian model made by these, you know, Czechoslovakian instrument makers who'd made cellos for generations, and there was a Korean one. And we mixed them up and said, put those guitars in order of what you think is the most, you know, the most valuable, the most and most playable. And we put the two, the, the English two and a half thousand one you'd put as the worst. And the um, Korean one, yeah, really, yeah, yeah, it was uh, horrible. So the so, the um the the Korean the Korean professional ones, model right. is the one that's that's made it, yeah. And I believe that if people will buy that instrument, care of the bass center, you yeah. can find it online, and that center spelled C E N T R E, yeah. the the British and Canadian yeah. and Australian and. Yeah. Kiwi and South African way, um, that you also get a copy of Rough Notes. You do get a signed copy of the book for the time being and see how that batch goes and see if we need to sign any more. I'm not being an hypochondriac or nothing, but I think I've got chlamydia. I went out to dinner. Some guy came over from America and said, I'll take you out to dinner. I'm doing a book about a book about blood and chocolate. I said, oh, a book about blood and chocolate. I went, out, I went out to dinner with him. I couldn't remember a thing about the album. I said, I'm going to have to listen to it and get back to you on email. Tell me what you want to know. I said, I'm sorry. What tra- I don't even know what tracks are on it, you know? And um, anyway, he said... Um, he said, have you had the opportunity to read Elvis's book? I said, oh, I've had the opportunity. I've had several opportunities. <laughs> and? <laughs> I've had several opportunities. You've had several opportunities. And life, and life is full of opportunities. Yeah. And on that rough note, Bruce, <laughs> I would like to thank you for taking the opportunity to yeah. pop in and have a chat with yeah. us here. Yeah, my pleasure. Cool. Well, that's your lot. Bruce and myself kept on chatting well into the evening, long after the recording light had ceased being illuminated. He's a truly lovely chap and really, really funny. I think Costello may have actually been right about referring to Mr Thomas as being the funniest fucker in the world in his track, How To Be Dumb. You've been listening to our interview with Bruce Thomas. My name is Dukey and I've been your host. May the worst of tomorrow be the best of yesterday. Now it's time for me to go and uh, pop my weasel. 
Thanks for listening. Half a pound of tuppenny rice, half a pound of treacle. That's the way the money goes. Pop goes the weasel. Facebook. Click on your mouse to our Facebook page. Easy to find, it will not take an age. Facebook www.facebook.com forward slash The Dookie Radio Show, The Dookie Radio Show. The thin white Dookie is right. Click your way to the Dookie Radio Show Facebook page www.facebook.com forward slash The Dukey Radio Show The Dukey Radio Show The Dukey Radio Show When I was a little kid and dreamt of becoming a professional musician and brandishing a four-string ukulele rather badly at the time I was worried about my then naturally blonde locks I only had a handful of musical role models who made me feel okay about being fair-haired at the time, the late Brian Jones and Bruce Thomas. When brunette-itis took over in my mid-teens, today's guest then became a musical hero and one of the reasons why I play bass. It was an absolute honour to have him on the Dukey Radio Show and it's an equal honour to have you listening in. Thanks for your ongoing support.